All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules Experience Podcast, whatever it is you guys like to call it. I'm your host, Lefpo, Lefpoliakov, Lefpo on Twitter, and we are here today to talk about the various branches of Christianity, as well as why certain ones are considered to be heretical. And with us, we have, for the first time, Michael Jones. Uh, it is a great pleasure to have you here with us today. You are an inspiring person, so goes your name, Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube. Great channel. I recommend everybody to check it out. Even if you are not a Christian, even if you are a heretic, I highly recommend checking the videos out because I think that it's going to have many things that you're going to resonate with. And, of course, back with us, the great Neil Gnostic Informant here, here. Got the raw milk in hand for the stream. This is my only dinner today, and I am ready to be astounded by the conversation that's about to take place. Here we go. I guess the only thing that I should say off the bat is everybody click that subscribe button. No, smash that subscribe button. Smash the like button. Click the bell. That's extremely important. And if you want to help the channel that brings everybody together, which is Break the Rules you got to support through Patreon, patreon.com slash break the rules. Anyway, with that being said, I would love to get an introduction from Michael. Please tell us about how you became Christian, where you raised Christian, and what inspired you to start your channel. Yeah, thanks for having me. I apologize, everyone. I am a little sick right now, so hence the blanket. I'm a little, a little slight fever, so I apologize if I seem a little off. My doctor said the only prescription is more cowbell, but unfortunately, CVS didn't have any for some odd reason. Don't know why. But yeah, my name is Michael Jones. I run Inspiring Philosophy. Um, I was raised in a very young earth fundamentalist type church, kind of became a deist for a little while, and then eventually came back and became a uh, Christian and got into apologetics after that. And around the early 2000s, when YouTube was just sort of coming out, I noticed there wasn't a lot of Christians on there. And I had a nighttime security job where I didn't do anything, so I started making videos in about 2011 and have been doing them since. Excellent. Wow. And uh, for those who do not know Neil, although I think that your two channels do intertwine, uh, you know, with the great Derek Lambert, uh, MythVision. So, Neil, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Sure, man. Um, I didn't grow up in any fundamentalist household whatsoever. Just an average. Like, I had a... The Italian family, so they were just by default Catholic on that side of the family. But it was like twice a year. You go to Easter, you go to Christmas. Sometimes we didn't even go. We just say, yeah, we'll do it next year. Like it was that it was that laid back. But my getting into it was when I started to um I was, you know, I was an addict for a while, ended up in prison. And that's where I started reading the Bible when I was in there. Read the whole thing cover to cover, became very, you know, very was grabbed by it. It was like it was speaking to me, you know, these parables about the son, the son who got lost his way. And uh, he was out in the in the world spending all of his um, inheritance on just whatever, on alcohol. And he comes back in the and the father's like, yeah, we're, we're going to throw a party for you. And the other son's like, well, what the hell? I've been here the whole time. What's what about me? And he's like, no, no, this is this is a good day. Our son is back and we should celebrate that. I thought that was me. I was that son. I was screwed up. I was out there in the streets doing all this crazy the stuff. Prodigal son. Right, right. I, so I got saved. I went to the born again side for, for years, five years about church twice a week, real into it. And um, in fact, it's funny because this the topic of today is sort of the reason why I sort of left the faith was 
I didn't, I didn't, number one, I, I kind of studied my way out in, in, in terms of the historicity of things. But what I, what I can't understand about today's Christianity and what I have a problem with is the idea of this sort of dogmatism in the sense, not all Christians, I don't even think you at all are, I'm just, I'm talking about like this, like the, this sort of idea of these evangelical Baptist Christians who sort of think it's like, you know, patriotism and Christianity are together. And they're always <laughs> that way. That sort of got, that sort of threw me off. You know what I mean? And yeah, so, Jesus with the machine gun and the American flag behind him flying I'm, on in the bald eagle. Yeah. I'm confused. When you were a Christian, you didn't get your Republican card. You're supposed to get that in the mail. Like, yeah, I, Jesus, I, I, Jesus I, sends I, it out to you. Yeah, I, I, I missed mine. I was at the wrong address. So, but anyways, no, I was part of those kind of churches. Though. I was part of the churches that was, you know, Trump is chosen. Like I had a pastor. <laughs> yeah, I had a pastor who said that. He said, if you're on Trump, hate you're, that crap. yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad we can agree on that. But it brings it. It sort of brings the topic of heretics because these type of churches will say you're a heretic if you vote democrat you know what i mean and and so but we don't have to just talk about today's christianity we can go back to the early church and how the idea of heresy even arose so i want to get sort of that thing too and i i guess that's where that's that's where i'll start off at well let's uh, start at the top then as far as what were the let's say even before Christianity, what were the movements that then led to what became the Christianity all of us know and love today, along with the uh, aforementioned heresies? Yeah, so talking about heresy itself, I mean Christianity does come out of Judaism uh, very much so. And we can see the same kind of idea of like you know heretics or people outside of the Orthodox faith of uh, of or, or, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, so, for example, we see, of course, the disputes uh, between like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you see texts where they're both sort of like you know, attacking each other. Pharisees, more of their texts have survived. So them sort of attacking the Sadducees. And then you see like even within the Pharisee groups, there's also splits. So like, you know, you'll see like there's one Jewish text. I can't remember where it is, but it's like, woe to you, Galilee, for you hate the Torah. And it was basically like scholars will notice like a it was like an internal like Pharisee type thing. The the Pharisees in Jerusalem were more pure in their own mind, and the Galilean Pharisees or those ones up there they did not get the Torah like they did. So it tends to be this sort of idea, you know, it's like if you're not doing things the way we think you're doing, then you're outside of the group or you're a heretic in that sense. And that's generally something we see in all religions, uh, different groups. Uh, you could see it even in philosophies, even you could say that maybe there were certain people that were Stoics and they became Epicurean, Epicureans, I believe is the term. Uh, they would have been considered a heretic, even though they may not have used that term, but you get the idea that, you know, they sort of leave their former philosophy and they go into something else. So heresy just seems to be a term we've applied to someone who is, um, or a heretic seems to be a term we've applied to someone who sort of leaves what we would consider the right beliefs and they now believe something different. Yeah, no. I, I think it's interesting about Christianity itself. It sort of comes out. It sort of comes out as a heresy in its own self, if you compare it to some of these like Sadducees who are, you know, only looking at the Torah. We don't really care about all this Greek stuff. But then you get people like Philo, who literally is like saying that Plato is holy, and um, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's he's re- revering some of these Greek philosophers. He's talking about Orpheus. He's talking about some of these other myths and and you could see this sort of philonic judaism where christian i think i feel like christianity especially christian theology sort of comes out of that and then and so when you look at it from that 
from from its birth being like that, right? If 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 that if, if that's the case, it's for me. It makes sense why when you look back, when I look back at the second century of Christianity, for example, when you see all these different diverse groups, the Carpocratians, the Nicenes, the Marcionites, all these different groups, they have completely different worldviews on things. They all agree that Jesus is the Messiah. Some of them might not think he's exactly the same as God. Some of them do. Like, there's a lot. There's a huge wide range, and for me, if, I feel like that was normal, and that's. And I think if it would have kept along that way, I think Christianity would still be thriving right now. Not that it's not like the most dominant religion in the West, but I think it'd be doing a lot better. That's what I think. So, if I understand you correctly, you're saying if Christianity was more Gnostic, because you mentioned uh, like Gnostic groups. Yeah, Gnostic. Well, I mean, what is Gnostic? I mean, is it just faith through? Uh, I define Gnostic as uh, salvation through gnosis rather than than faith. Other people will say everything I just said is Gnostic, but it's not true. Those are Gnostic is a word that Irenaeus and Hippolytus call heretics. Like I just, they're all Christians in my opinion. They're all just Christ, mm. Christian varieties. Even the Nicene preacher who equates Jesus with Addis and Adonis. What's wrong with that? He's looking around at other 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 sacred stories and saying, "Well, they thought they were worshiping Addis, but they were really worshiping the Christ." I think that should be a per perfectly plausible mm -hmm. Christian theology, in my opinion. Well, if we can go back a little bit to when Christianity first started, can we thread the path of Christianity as it is today, as it is considered to be the true Christianity, and then where exactly did it start to divert into other interpretations? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I push back, and I would say that a lot of these other groups, like these Gnostic groups, they sort of come about after Christianity spreads out of the area of Judea. Gnosticism itself is not is not just Christian. We, we Philo talked about Jewish Gnostic groups before. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, there was also, you know, Zoroastrian Gnostic groups. It's just, as you mentioned, I would say it's, um, it's salvation through secret knowledge. Uh, in Gnosticism, it's about what you know. In Christianity, it's about who you know, which is Jesus. You know, that kind of the difference there. And the, these Gnostic groups were very good at syncretism. They were very good because they worked a lot through analogy. We've heard this story. We've heard this tale. We can interpret it in this analogous way to fit with the sort of idea of revealing secret knowledge or having secret knowledge. So they're very good about incorporating, syncretizing other faiths. So as Christianity spreads out, we see Gnostic groups like Sessites, Canaanites start to take roots in places like Egypt, uh, which seems to be a pretty big Gnostic place. Sure. Uh, but the reason why we would say that Gnostic groups today and ancient Gnostic groups were heretical was because they rejected essential Christian doctrines. Uh, they sort of took Christian ideas, incorporated into the uh, already uh, syncretized with the Gnostic ideas about secret knowledge, reworked some of the uh, stories of Jesus to fit with the Gnostic idea, came up with their own gospels, this kind of thing. And Early, Christ, early church fathers, the direct descendants of the apostles like Ignatius and Polycarp, did try to did well. They did respond to them, and did deal with a lot of their views and saying, "Well, you're not you're not believing the faith that's been handed down to the apostles." So within Christianity, the reason why we would say these Gnostic groups were were heretical, that they were not Christian, is because they started rejecting essential Christian doctrines. They started taking Christian stories, Christian ideas, reinterpreting it within a Gnostic framework, syncretizing. Uh, that kind of idea and we were and not we the early christians were uh, basically like no you're not you're not 
believing the faith that we've got mm -hmm. from the apostles they got from jesus so therefore this is heretical well, before Neil responds, there was a super chat from Myth Vision Podcast, uh, our friend Derek, who says, here is my indulgence for my heresy question. What standard in the first century classifies as heretical? What's up, Lev? So, Michael, what would be the standards? What standard in the first century classifies yes. as heretical? So, if I'm understanding the question, the question right, I would say it's, a, it's, again, it's rejecting the essential doctrines that were handed down by the church the apostles, Christ. So Gnostics, for example, denied Jesus physically died and rose again to atone for but not sins. All, not all of them did that. Like we're jump. I'm just going to jump. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but when you say mm -hmm. Gnostics believe like we have, this is why I don't like using that term because we're, mm -hmm. there's a lot of different uh, Christian heretic groups that don't necessarily believe that. Yeah. There's, Gnosticism I, is a blanket term for sure. But my, I, I just wanted to make sure that what do you, I mean, what, are you talking about specifically any specific group that doesn't believe that Jesus was? I mean, it's true that you're right. There are some groups that would be considered Gnostic that did think that Jesus was just mm -hmm. a guy. Sure. But I don't think all of them thought that. You know what I mean? And they're still they're still considered heretics for other reasons. Right. So what I'm saying is, is that like it's like this. There are essential Christian doctrines. If you do not, you got to accept all of them to be a Christian. So, for example, uh, let's take Jehovah. Jehovah. According to who? According to the, uh, the faith handed down from the apostles to the church fathers. It's kind of right. But what, where do we? But that, that's okay. This is what we're going to need to get to. We need to get to because we have the Nicene Creed that comes way later. And I think mm -hmm. that's what most Christians agree on today. But how do we because the, these early Christians that are considered heretics by these fourth century Christians, they don't know these. They don't have this idea. They're just doing what they believe is the right thing compared based on their worldview, based on where they're at. Mm -hmm. you, you understand what I'm saying? So I guess what I'm saying is, who is it somewhere in Paul? Is it Jesus himself? If we, look at, if we just look at Jesus, as like, if we agree, just for the sake of argument, that everything that's documented in the Gospels from the words of Jesus, he literally said, we just based our theology off that. What, then then a lot of these groups that are so-called heretics, I think that they're valid. They're, they're, I mean, the Carper Creations, for example, they're getting their ideas from the Bible that we should all live in in uh we should all share our riches amongst each other and sort of a very socialist type of worldview that's considered heretical later on. But they're all I mean, even Carpocrates is literally quoting uh scripture for his ideas. He's not just making stuff up. Well, I wouldn't say that's an essential Christian doctrine, this idea of you know sharing. Yeah, that was, just one, that that was just one example, but yeah. yeah. And, you know, essential Christian doctrines would be accepting of the Trinity, Jesus' divinity, physical resurrection, uh, you know, physically died Trinity. on the cross, atoning for sins, inspiration of scripture, that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And typically, as far as I can tell, Gnostic groups will deny at least one or many of those doctrines, and that's why they were considered heretical. Sure. And where, okay, so that's what I'm trying to get at. And I don't, I'm not mm -hmm. trying to be combative, but I'm trying to understand where in scripture do we have to follow a trinity? Where in the scripture do we have to feel that Jesus literally has to be up on the same level as Yahweh? Because I know there's there are some who think he's just a prophet. Okay, you can call him a heretic, fine. We can both agree with that. But there are some Christians, some of these uh, di different heretical groups that, you know, they put him up as a divine being who, were, who attained apotheosis. But they're going to mm -hmm. say, well, he's not the same as Yahweh, but he's, yeah, we can pray to him and we can do all that. But like that would be considered heretical. You know, yeah. Well, it's because we would argue that people uh, early Christian writings like Mark, uh, letters of Paul as well, here or teach 
through what they're saying that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So it's denying that Jesus is Yahweh, the creator, uh, one of one member of the Trinity that, you know, is later formulated, but based on what scripture taught, uh, that when they deny these things, then they get pushed outside of orthodoxy. It's generally the idea that this is one thing I tell people. The Trinity is essential for Christianity. This is something that Orthodox Protestants and Catholics agree on. Denying the Trinity means you're outside of Orthodoxy, pure and simple, because essential to uh, Christianity is who is God, who has saved us, who are we worshiping? Well, right. we would say it's the triune God. And if you deny that, you deny that Yahweh is triune, that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That's where we have a problem. We go, okay, now, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, you're denying this something essential. This puts you outside of orthodoxy. Where in scripture do you see this idea that there's a trinity? Oh. Okay. Well, I would not say there's one verse that teaches the trinity, but I would say that it's a taught throughout scripture, this idea that, uh, well, the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So we take Mark, for example. Mark does this thing where he constantly is in the genre of Greco-Roman biography. He is using Old Testament passages to talk about Jesus. This is something that I had Mike McCone on my channel. We sort of went through this thing. So Mark 6, 48, 49. And then about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried. Well, it's, it's, scholars have noted that what's sort of happening in Mark 6 is he's actually quoting a passage from Job 9 about Yahweh. Behold, he passes by me. I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Same we see later when Jesus is being on trial in Mark before the Sanhedrin. They ask him, are you the... Uh, uh, the Messiah, the son of uh, the son of man. And he goes, yes, and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, uh, directly quoting Daniel 7. Mark chapter 1 opens up with this uh, passage from Isaiah about how someone's going to come to prepare the way for Yahweh, who's going to come. Now, we would think that would be Jesus, but what we see in Mark 1, 4 is that John appears. John appears baptizing, preparing the way for the Lord. So who comes right after John in Gospel of Mark? Well, it is uh, Jesus. Then we see in the, like, the next chapter this idea of um, we can look at Old Testament passages about only God can forgive sins. Jesus is forgiving sins. And there, Mark is even have, putting words into the mouth of his opponents, like who can forgive sins but God? And Jesus says, well, you know, no, no, I can. So that's why I am, you know, hint, hint. So we see this in Lacona goes through chapter after chapter after chapter showing how Mark is taking Old Testament passages that are about Yahweh, applying them to Jesus. And then saying, see, I'm telling you right now, Jesus is Yahweh. And I'm using the, the genre of Greco-Roman biographies. And in that genre, you illuminate a person through their words and deeds. You tell about a person by their words and deeds. Now we see Paul doing the same thing even in his epistles. He does this in places like 1 Corinthians 8, 6, uh, referring to Deuteronomy 6, 4, Romans 10, 9, quoting back to Joel 2, 32. I mean, I think that's a pretty clear one because it says any, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and saying call upon the name of Jesus, directly referencing back to a passage in Joel about calling upon the name of the Lord. So I would say the early Christians were pretty clear in trying to say, look, we cannot be even more clear. Every time we talk about Jesus, we're quoting this Old Testament passage. We're quoting this Old Testament passage. What do you think we're trying to get show you here? Right. I mean, you can I, I get what you're saying. You, just, you could select out those passages. But what if I tell you, what if I select out Mark 10? 8, 17 through 19, Jesus is on his way. A, a man ran up to him and said, good teacher, what must mm -hmm. I do to inherit the eternal life? He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Yep. He doesn't say, I'm God. He doesn't say, and then what does he say after that? He tells him to, he says, don't, don't murder, don't commit adultery. He tells him to, to follow the law, which is very, I don't think that's what Paul would say. You know what I mean? I mean, so I, what do you think about someone using this as saying, 
look, Jesus is even saying himself that he's not the same as God. You know, I brought this passage up when I had like Kona on my channel. Uh, we talked about this and Jesus says, Jesus doesn't deny it. He's asked him what he's saying when you say this. Why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. So, sir, do you realize what you're saying here? You're calling me God. Now, in this context of telling the story of Jesus, this is going to be another subtle hint that he is God. Here, someone comes up and calls him good. And what does Jesus reply? If you're calling me good, you're calling me God. You know what that means? So it seems to be another subtle hint used in the genre of the Greco-Roman biography to sort of shed light on this idea. Jesus never says, oh, no, only God is good. You can't. That's not me. He says, he's asking the guy, do you realize the impact of your, what your claim is making? Now, with your res response to Paul, uh, notice what we're doing here. Jesus is talking to a Jewish man before his death and resurrection, before the new covenant has been instituted. And he says, you know the commandments. These are what you have to do to sort of inherit the kingdom. And he says, I've done all these things. And then Jesus says, well, you know, you're missing one thing. You lack one thing. Sell all you have to the poor. And then, of course, we know that the man is disheartened. And then what does Jesus do? Turns to disciples. And his disciples say, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed. Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter heaven. They're astonished. They, they say, well, then who can be saved? Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And I would argue along with, like Lakota, this is another subtle reference to the fact that God is the one who needs to save us. And what do we see at the end of the, at, in the Paul's epistles as well? And at the end of Mark, it's Jesus who dies on the cross and atones for sins. So again, we have another subtle hint here that Jesus is God because he says, look, yeah, it's impossible for you to work your way into heaven through these types of things. But luckily, God is going to save you. And we see that later in Mark when Jesus tones for sins. I have a quick question uh, for uh, both Michael and uh, Neil. In the original uh, Greek, uh, the Septuagint, were there certain subtleties in that passage, the way that it would be said in Greek, that would give a stronger hint as to how Jesus is answering that question. It's pretty well. Strange. I mean, yeah. I mean, the Septuagint is quoted mostly when the when they're in the Gospels, like they're quoting the Septuagint. I think over like three hundred times. So a lot of the times when you see a quote in the New Testament of the Old Testament, it's, it's most likely coming from the Septuagint. Yeah. Okay, I, I may have miss. Uh, Miss said something. I did not mean to talk about the Old Testament, which is what the Septuagint is. I meant the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, that particular passage when Jesus was talking about him. In uh, Michael, in your case, you mean that he was uh, saying that he was God, while uh, Neil thinks that by that he distances himself from ever being called God. Would certain subtleties of the original Greek that this was written in give us a further clue as to which which one of you is right? I think I think it's straightforward. The sure. translation's pretty good. I mean, I don't think okay. that, but I, but I would agree. I would I would appeal though to cultural context. We have to remember this is an honor shame culture. They're very much honor challenging people. You you respond with rhetorical questions. You respond by throwing a question back at somebody else. You don't say you're not direct in these types of public honor challenges. You want to sort of put the person who's come to you publicly. Because none of these meetings that we see, other than like, for example, Nicodemus, who says, we're told comes privately at night. All of these would have been public, uh, public events. They would have been before people. And in these types of things, you've got to remember, these can be perceived as honor and shame challenges. So the way Jesus is going to respond may not seem direct to us. But in an honor and shame culture, this is what we would expect, sort of responding with questions, sort of saying, hey, 
do you realize what you said? Do you realize the implications of your own saying? This kind of attitude is, is very much in that type of culture. Yeah, I get that. But it's still it's still very different than him saying, I'm literally just believe in me and you'll be fine. He could have just said it right there, but he didn't. And, and, and this, here's the thing that trips up most people when it comes to the Trinity is that if Jesus is a sin offering, who is the who's getting the offering? Him, I mean, is it himself that he's the sin offering? Who is taking the offering? You know what I mean? I'm not trying to get you on anything, but what I'm saying right. is the question of the Trinity seems like something that shouldn't be so solidified as in who's a heretic and who's not, in my opinion. I think there's a lot of room, a lot of wiggle room for people to say, well, I don't think it's really necessarily Trinity, especially when you look at the fact that there, there's not a single verse in any of the epistles until later on that actually says God is a Trinity. There's a triune God nature, like Philo says. We have to kind of add that in later on, which is fine. I, I don't care about that. But what I'm saying well, is for someone to not agree with that should be fair game, I think. Well, real quick, in Mark 10, Jesus does say, you know, sell all your possessions and follow me. So it's the same kind of idea of believe in me. He's saying you should follow after me like my disciples are, that same kind of sense. So we do see that in that passage. Yeah, that's something Moses uh, would say too. Moses, Elijah, I mean, that doesn't really make him a god. Well, I mean, in context, I would say the full essence of Mark, but mm. I was just addressing that one aspect. Is we're you mentioned that we're maybe missing that idea of believe in me, but it is in there and just different words. Uh, but I'm I'm kind of confused on where you're coming from because, sure, I mean, if it seems to be a salvation thing, that seems to be quite essential to Christianity. If you're going to believe in the Christian doctrines, it seems to be that believing in the whole salvation process, the idea that God saves us from our sins is kind of essential to Christianity and sort of saying, well, you know, you can sort of reject that and still believe and still be a Christian. Uh, it's, it's, it, I'm, maybe I'm having a disconnect here. Maybe you can elaborate well, more. And, and also just to be real clear, when we're having this discussion, I want to make sure that the focus would be not just on uh, heretical views towards Christianity, but views of Christianity within the various branches that would have appeared that are then considered heretical. So just within those particular spheres, would what Michael said uh, be something that all of them agree on or no? All of them agree on what? Can you? As far as the, uh, well, as far as the divinity of Jesus goes. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so the divinity of Jesus. So no, because you take, for example, Gnostic groups. I mean, they deny the God of the Old Testament. They make that disconnect. They sort of say Jesus is sort of like an aeon. Some Gnostic groups would say that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, of course, the God of the Old Testament is a demiurge. And he's evil. And that would be sort of rejecting this idea that we see in the early Christian writings that Jesus is god in the flesh the same god of the old testament and he did fulfill the scriptures that kind of sense so no you, you can't just say that well we you know a gnostic just can't come along and say well we believe jesus is divine well, what does that mean i mean i i i've talked to hindus who think jesus is divine that doesn't mean they actually are that mean i mean they're christians because they believe he's like some sort of like maybe hindu like avatar type thing uh that that kind of sense and it's like well no you don't get to be a christian just by believing jesus is divine you got to you got to actually hold to the essential doctrines of what we mean when we say Jesus is dying. We mean he is Yahweh in the flesh. He fulfilled the scriptures. Uh, he is the same God uh, that was there in the beginning and then, then came in the flesh, that kind of thing. So when Gnostics come along and they say, well, we believe Jesus is divine, but they reject the atonement. And again, I'm not, I know Gnosticism is a blanket term. It's just hard to talk yeah. about it without, you know, you know, mentioning specifics in there. But you know, when they say Jesus is divine, but they, 
also what when you get into the nitty-gritty diesel what that means you go well this isn't christianity anymore this is a heretical group that sort of comes out a little bit later yeah but that to say it like that it, it's a hindsight way of looking at it because like the valentinians for example the valentinians are almost lined up perfectly with a orthodox christianity except they have this other they have an idea of salvation of uh, attaining gnosis in the sense of becoming the most pious person you can possibly be and then that's how you ascend up into heaven and um the, the, you got to remember too like the world paul is talking to you got james and his christianity assuming that you know the james of the epistle sort of lines up with who james is like that's fine but the he he's he that's a more ebionite worldview where it's more about the law more about um following the customs of the torah and then you paul has his other he's going out into the world into anatolia into greece into macedonia and he's talking to people who are called god fearers they're pagans and they're but they're called god fearers and a lot of them are like what is this judaism thing and so they're coming out of this orphic tradition they're not like pagans that are like people think of pagans a lot of christians think of pagans as like they're just wicked Dionysus worshippers uh, having orgies everywhere. They're, no, 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 no. The Pythagoreans and the Platonists were pious God-fearers. And they were very, very um, well accustomed to receive someone like Paul who's teaching this sort of new religion. And so they're looking at it like the idea of being pious and uh, living a good life of, you know, of not worrying about riches and not trying to be greedy. And those are the things that they necessarily were focused on and so that's how you end up getting all these different groups of christianities and so what i think is what i think happened was this this idea of you if you don't believe in this one idea of how jesus is he's a trinity or else you're a heretic that's where i think christianity falls apart in my opinion that's why that's i think i think it could have been a lot better of a religion if it allowed for people to sort of form their own private theologies that makes sense. So that to me just drifts too far into relativism. This idea, we, I mean, how far do we go with that? You, you sort of get this. Well, the ancient, the, structure. the ancient, the ancient Greeks did pretty well with it. With before Christianity, you had. What do you mean? You didn't have to be a worshiper of just Zeus, or you didn't have to be just a Bacchic, a Bacchus worshiper. There was all these different outlets of of spirituality, and and they sort of the way the Greeks had the way the Greeks and, and very much in the in the East too with a lot of the Vedic cultures. Religion and spirituality are like an expression of the self. It's art. It's um, it's like uh, it's it's something that is 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 like tangible, and so the, I think there's more you can get more out of that is is what I'm saying. Especially in, the, in terms of Christianity, that when you have all these early Christian groups, a lot of them when you when you actually look at what they're saying, these are ideas that are useful. They're good. Like the Carpocratians have really good ideas on how to how to run a society how to treat people how to act basically instead of just if you don't believe in this we're going to hang you from a or, or we're going to uh, burn you because you're a witch or something like you know. so let, let, let me address that really quickly this idea of christians persecuting and i mean there's a lot of misconceptions about christian history that you know people like tim o'neill on a history for atheists have pointed out uh, early christians were not running around and like burning people. I mean, the idea of witch burning doesn't really come about until like the first thousand years after uh, Christianity. Uh, and the uh, historian Nathan Johnstone notes that a lot of this 
uh, these persecutions did not come about from Christianity, uh, but came about uh, from a, he says in his own words, it was a failure of rationalism, this idea we're going to introduce human jurists back to the equation. But in Lombard Lars, for example, uh, first thousand years of Christianity say witches don't exist and no Christian mind should believe in them. Uh, so there was this idea that, you know, they weren't really doing this hardcore persecuting that I think you might be implying. So I just want to address mm. that. They were addressing these criticisms. They were responding. I mean, an Irenaeus wrote against heresies, but this idea that they had this sort of ultimate power where they were sort of like going after heretics. We don't really see that, in, in, especially in the first 300 years of Christianity. That does not come out. Yeah, I would agree with that. They're early on, it was things weren't, didn't get as dogmatic as they did later on. I'll agree with that. Mm. After the Middle Ages, it gets worse, I think. I think I think between the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, that little that's where it's just it's like you might as well just compare it to fundamentalist Islam at that point. You cannot mm. you could not live in Rome or in in Florence or in uh, Naples and try to set up a, a, uh, a temple to Bacchus. What do you think would happen to you if you did that? <laughs> You're done. Yeah. You're being killed for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. but, then, yeah. but then here's what I'm kind of curious about when it comes to how the pagan religions were treated by the governments of their time. Cause what we're really talking about here is in a way government enforced, uh, uh, sanctions and destruction of, uh, other people's beliefs. So during the Roman times, how were the various uh, pagan cults treated by those governments? And would you also say, Neil and Michael as well, that it is inevitable that Christianity as it is ends up merging with the government into this theocratic state over time? Could this have been avoided? Could that terrible time that you talked about, could that have been avoided or not? That's my whole point. I think if we didn't have this idea of heresy or the Nicene Creed, that would have avoided it. I think that's my, I mean, I could be wrong. But I would like to hear what you think about that. So again, we, we don't really see a lot of that coming out until like the first 1000 years or so later. I mean, Tom Holland even talks about it in his book dominion. Uh, and so, yeah, you definitely see this sort of merger idea later on where they start going after heretics in ways that, you know, like that obviously are wrong, like persecution, like the Cathars, for example, right. much later times. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did that come up? Now, is that a direct result of Christianity? Uh, I would argue not necessarily. And building on historians like Nathan Johnstone in his book, The New Atheism, says that, no, this was this was not something that we saw coming directly from Christianity. This was an introduction of rationalism back into the system. Uh, There was this idea we're going to move away from God's uh, providence. We're going to start introducing human jurists, this idea that we can sort of uh, try people and get this thing sort of going. And so he says this this idea of these um, out of control clergy, this was a failure of rationalism to control its offspring. It was not this idea this is coming directly from Christianity. This is an idea that is um, coming out of a much later idea. And that's his book, The New Atheism. I had him on my channel a couple months. I interviewed him about it. Uh, but what we see in early Christianity, like, look, look, at, look at Irenaeus, for example. He's writing against heresies. Well, Justin Martyr as well. You know, they're, they're responding to heretical views, but they're not saying like, you know, oh man, I really wish the emperor would, you know, round you up and burn you all at the stake kind of idea. So you can have Christianity that teaches that there are dogmas, there are doctrines we need to hold to without this idea there necessarily has to be persecution. It doesn't necessarily flow like from one to the other is what I'm trying to say. Mm. But there are examples uh, in earlier times if we're talking about uh, Hypatia, and I am not as well versed in whether that story is true or not, but it's not true. 
No, there was again a lot of myths. Same with like the Library of okay. Alexandria. This idea that Christians burned it down or killed Hypatia for being here. No, that again, Tim O'Neill, who's an atheist, runs a channel or channel and a blog, History for Atheists. He has addressed this through and through. Hypatia was not persecuted by Christians for rejecting Christianity or anything like that. Uh, she got caught up in a political dispute, and unfortunately, uh, you know, she was a um, she was a casualty of that. Uh, same with like the Library of Alexandria. There is no evidence Christians were going around trying to burn pagan literature. Right? You, so, like, believe, you do have the story of the Serapium in Egypt, and you have Christian sources that actually sort of have a different, lighter version of it. But if you compare it to the Serapis worshippers' stories, because we have both, you, you kind of find a middle ground. There's something going on there. They're not just letting them be. They're they're saying this temple needs to go. That's that's a fact. Like so, you can, Tim O'Neill details about that, but yeah. Well, Tim O'Neill points out that actually in the Serapium, for example, there was a, a mob of pagans that were persecuting Christians and crucifying them and doing. That's things. the Christian version, yeah. Yeah, so they uh, went in there and they um, kind of took care of it because of that. So again, it's a complicated history. You're right. Uh, and again, do we know the full story? Well, again, it's always going to be filtered by people. That's what I say. You have both sides of the stories, and they're completely. We're the good mm. guys, and they yeah. persecuted us. The other one's <laughs> yeah. like, no, but, we're the good guys. I think yeah. there's something. If you look in the, if you if you take them both and look at, there's definitely some something happening there between the both. So, but again, we don't see this as like in a widespread thing. We can see isolated examples where something like that may have happened. Mm. But again, for, there's, for there's what we a lot know, of yeah. mix in there. Yeah, but uh, I mean, my again, Tim, oh sorry, Tim O'Neill again points out again. Yeah. There, there's a lot more complexity here. There was no library burn in the Serapium. Pagan literature was not being attacked by Christians. Uh, this was more against trying to, in his own words, it was getting the mob that was persecuting Christians held up in the Serapium. And that's not coming from me. It's coming from an atheist. But why would, why would Serapis worshippers just decide all of a sudden during Theodosius's reign to start start going after Christians? Oh, well, uh, O'Neill talks about this. I mean, Christians were going after uh, iconography, pagan iconography and idols and destroying them. And they got pissed about it. So they responded by attacking Christians. I mean, yeah. Wait, wait. So don't you think that's kind of like provoking it though a little bit? You know? I mean, I don't think there's ever a a, a reason to actually start killing people. Like, oh, you killed our idol, therefore we're going to kill you, kind of thing. I think that's going a little too far. Now, do I agree with Christians destroying I, you know, pagan idols? Absolutely not. I would love for those things to have been preserved from an, especially from an historical perspective. They'd be really cool. But I mean, like. Yeah, the history is complex here. But again, I don't think that justifies the pagans killing the Christians as mm. they were. Well, a quick follow-up question, if that's all right. When we're talking about not really knowing what happened in history, because it was a very long time ago, we can only rely on so much at the end of the day. If we're just being very practical and talking about, let's say, the Council of Nicaea and then the development of a religion that was uh, supported in large part by the uh, government at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Would you say just practically something like that would lead to, you know, as the saying goes, uh, ultimate power corrupts ultimately, just the fact that you have so much responsibility over the people now from this government that has this very specific religion that they're in favor of? Would you say that that would create more of these conflicts that we may not even know about right now, but just knowing the nature of human beings? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's just it's a doctrine of original sin. I mean, of course, we're going to expect power to corrupt. And of course, I am all for keeping religion out of governments. I'm all for that separation, especially on the federal level. So, yeah, I think that was that was a problem. Sorry, taking Christianity, especially with Theodosius, making it such like an, you know, sort of like a, a state level thing. 
Uh, and of course, we see other Christians later pushing back against this, like the monk Alcuin, for example, uh, under um, the Frankish emperor. What's his name? Charlemagne. Oh, Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Yeah. Charlemagne was forcibly converting uh, Germanic Christians. And Alcuin said, stop doing this. That's not the way Christianity is supposed to work. You should not. People need to freely accept this, not be forced upon them. But back to the original question, do you think uh, that there is something within Christianity that inevitably led to it being uh, adopted in that way? Or could there have been an alternate reality where people would have just chosen on their own to either be Christians or not? That's what I'm really trying to figure out here. So are you asking, does, is there something inherent Christianity that leads to sort of like a state controlling can I ask? Let me ask. Let me yes. ask this. How about this? Might be a better question. Okay. Wouldn't you? Don't you think that if there was no state decree from an emperor or somebody to say that you this is has to be this way and you have to follow this, this, and this, or else, if you let people uh, like we have right now here in America, you can worship however you want. You can worship the tree next to your house if you want. Don't you think that would make a better society? Yes. Okay. Um, of course, I believe in freedom. I think, you, and my last, just one more thing. Don't you think that would have prevented all of this heretical, all these trials, all these inquisitions if we didn't? If we just started it off that way, right? Well, I mean, I would say Christianity did start off that way. They were not in power. No, no, no that's true. That's true. When it, it started off, that way. what I'm saying is, if it, if it never got to the point where there was creeds, is what I'm saying. I should have said it that way. No, I think creeds are essential to help define what we believe, uh, what we believe Scripture teaches. Uh, uh, I think that's quite essential to understanding, you know, sort of beliefs. I mean, I think Mormons have every right to establish what they believe. Jehovah's Witnesses have right. Right, but I'm saying, what I'm saying is like state creeds where the government yeah, says. Again, I am yeah. all against okay. state-run religions controlling things. Um, I just did a video recently on Christian nationalism, where I, I pointed out uh, that I talked about in the video that uh, there's studies showing that Christianity, especially within the past couple hundred years, has led to more democracy. Uh, political stability, political transformation, voice and accountability, citizen empowerment, studies done by like Robert Woodbury, Ronald to Salem and the like have shown uh, using um, actual scientific models that Christianity has led to these types of ideas. Now, let me, okay. I have to, I have to push on that. So how go do, for it? How, how do I we got the explain? Studies. I know I get, I get that. I, I have the documents. I, I'm, there's, a, there's, <laughs> there's a study for everything, I guess, but, but let's, just, let's, just be, let's just talk real here. Let's talk. Let's be like, like logically here. How, what, what, what took so long when we have a world pre-Christianity, we already have a world with democracies, with constitutional republics, all these ideas are already in place. Then we get Christianity. Then we go backwards for a little while. And then all of a sudden I'm, I'm speeding up here, but I'll let you, I'll let you push back as much as you want. Just let mm -hmm. me finish this off. Then we get to a, a point in time. And when we have, when we're, when, and like for the enlightenment, where you have mm -hmm. more liberal ideas, going back and looking at people like Democritus and uh, Epicureans and people who aren't Christians and borrowing their ideas, the, the Athenian laws and going backwards, like even the constant, even the uh, founding fathers like Jefferson and all the, and, and uh, um, Franklin, they're looking at, they're saying they're basically deists who are basically saying the Greeks had it right. We need to go back to that. And so where, what, how does Christianity get credited for and, and what took so long? basically so the question yeah what took so long uh so for example we need to think remember that history is complex 
uh, there's a lot of things that are also, you know, for the first few hundred years, Christians are just being persecuted. They're just trying to survive at this point. They don't have any sort of power. Uh, the missionaries are doing is just trying to work within the Roman Empire themselves. Uh, then we see, for example, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, notes that we do start to see early freedom type ideas start to show up. You have Gregory Nisa talking about abolition quite early on. You have the monk Alquin, for example, advocating for freedom as well. This idea there should be more free education. Uh, we need to educate the people. People need to, cannot be forcibly converted. But of course, we see also through this time, there was a, a global cooling period that did sort of slow this sort of progress thing down. There was also Viking raids. You had Muslim raids. A lot of times, you know, or for the past 2000 years, Sometimes they were just focused on other stuff. But once we see Christianity, Europe sort of get like a, some breathing room, get some space where they don't have to worry about constant wars, constant incursions, this kind of thing. They start branching out. Then we start to see missionary roots, as Robert Woodbury has demonstrated in his models, start to encourage these types of ideas. They start to uh, become anti-colonial in their movements, start to establish these types of freedom things. So I would say that we do actually see hints of it, as Tom Holland has documented. But, of course, we don't really get to see the full fruition of it until we get more breathing room when there's a lot less uh, external forces that, you know, people in Europe are having to deal with and having to struggle through. I mean, if you're a medieval peasant in the 700s, you're not you're, – you're more worried about Viking incursions and growing food and just, just trying to get through these hard times at that point. You're not really going to get the full effects until we start to see a little bit more um, stabilized Europe is what I'm saying. But then, okay, so when, when, we, when we look at individual freedoms and liberalism coming out of France and, 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 and America as well, the, the, they're, they're opposing the last, let's say, two, three hundred years of the theocratic rule, not just by the Catholic Church, but also Anglican Church and Lutheran Church who had their strongholds in their Germany and England. And they're looking at this whole church and state thing and saying, this is a bad idea. And once we get away from that, things start to get better. I just think it's the opposite. Or let me, I want to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's um, what they would argue in the models. They said it was, it was a missionary root thing. It was Christian missionaries encouraged these type things. What, what time period is this? Just wondering. So I think Woodbury uh, basically says 1700s up to the uh, 20th century is what he uses. And so Salem uses something similar as well. Uh, but we'll see these in a lot of uh, places like India, Africa, and the Americas as well, where they're affecting these things. And I'm sure the I'm sure the date is plausible, but uh, would isn't there another factor outside of this stuff, as in liberal movements, constitutional republics, democracy, being they're work they're working within those systems, so they're kind of, they're sort of ha they sort of have no choice but to go along with the new the new trend of the world. Wouldn't don't you think that's sort of a factor too? Well, of course, it's a factor. Uh, they, they, they calculate that in their models and they, they run these robustness tests and they check for factors as well. And we're not saying that Christianity is the only factor. Let's be, let's be clear. They're saying it is one factor among many. Uh, never once would a sociologist or a historian say there's just one factor that leads to something. There's always going to be multiple factors. Because I'll, I'll, even, I'll even go, I'll even throw you, uh, uh, I'll throw you a bone here because Christianity in, in its context of some of the ideas coming from the, the 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 parables of Jesus, for example, they are they would have been seen as SJW for the time period. Linda, <laughs> yeah, seriously, uh, Jesus, I, been, I, Jesus was very liberal for his time period for the, some of the things he said. Um, yeah. That doesn't mean that so there are other parts in some of the epistles of Paul, for example, where there are some things that you know that sound kind of you know okay, right? Can, Come with the sword and all yeah, that. We can drop that stuff. But I'll give you that point where the idea of Christian morality sort of like you know gets embedded within western culture 
and then you had the mm-hmm. idea of you know being good to people. I'm I'm fine with giving Christianity some credit for that. Um, yeah, I and guess. again, and I I'm 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 totally agreeing with you. It's not the only factor. There's yeah. multiple factors. Sure. Um, unless you had something else to say, I was going to ask you about the the idea of the apostles handing down their idea of what's the what's the right way to do Christianity. And mm-hmm. how do we trace that? How do we know? Because Marcion, for example, claims that he was learning from Paul's people. And then you have Carpocratians who say, or, or Carpocrates, I forgot the name of his father, was Apostle of John. Or, they all have mm. their claims to these. They're, they, they're all claiming to be from the, the, the source. Mm. And how do well, we I mean, know who's right and who's not? Right. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, I could, of course, uh, do apostolic succession as well. Uh, the argument would be is that what are the earliest writings we see uh, and what scholars would say? And they would say, of course, Paul's letters, uh, Gospel of Mark, and then the other Gospels as well uh, that come after that. And I, I would argue these are far more in line with the orthodoxy that we have today. Uh, it's not more in line with these other groups that came that we see coming out in the second century, like Marcion's uh, views. We would say those views do not seem to be in line with the earliest Christian writings that we have, like dating Mark or dating Paul's epistles. So, again, it goes back to the New Testament and what we would say it actually gives us. Now, it's funny. Now, I when I read Paul, I get the impression that Paul is just kind of laid back in what people believe in, as long as you believe in Jesus. Like, he's kind of like, you know, I might hang out with some pagans and they're, they're, they might offer uh, an offering to a pagan god. And they might, you know, I might eat their burnt offering that's to Zeus. I don't believe in Zeus, so who cares? Fair game. <laughs> I like that mentality, but I don't. Think- I would I would agree with you to an extent, but I'd push back a little bit on, on elsewhere. Oh, uh, well, I, I just want to make sure that we pin something down that's been kind of itching at me from the last question that I was asking. If there was a hypothetical scenario where the government would have uh, wanted to institute Zeusism or, you know, some kind of a particular cult, they would have elevated it. Would they have been able to get away with that or not? Because you talked about proselytization. And that's a very interesting thing to me, because in Judaism, Jews don't proselytize, unless you count, like, the Orthodox proselytizing to other non-Orthodox Jews. In Christianity and in Islam, there is this proselytization. Would you see that as being a factor that's also not present within pagan religions that also may lead more than any potential pagan religion to having the government being involved? Or am I drawing a connection that's not really there? So I would say that we do see the government definitely involved early with especially emperor worship and Christians were persecuted for not sacrificing to the emperor. Hmm. They were not participating. And I mean, Christians were declared atheists because they did not partake in the typical festivals of the day. So they were persecuted for that. So we do see that coming out of pagan ideas. This idea, you're different from us, therefore we're going to persecute you. Well, it's funny you say that because the, the the um the era from Augustus will say Augustus down to when you know Constantine throughout that period. You're right. You if you didn't you didn't worship the emperor first and foremost, you were in trouble. But they also let you do your own thing outside of that. And so that kind of that Brit, that sort of model, like if, if the Roman Empire decided Christianity is the way. And we're going to make it our state religion. You could still have that model, I think. And and by the way, Augustus's reforms, he was he was very much in line with Christian thinking of you know traditional values, marriage, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that. You know, 
Well, there is there is one issue Christians that put push back on with Augustus, and that was one of Augustus's laws was like widows have to be married after two years, and Christians, I believe Rodney Stark talks about it, were paying the the fines so widows did not have to get remarried. Sure. So there were there was a little bit different of traditions along the way sure. there. Mm. And that's a good uh, but, point. That's a good point. Yeah. There should always be the I think to address something like that, we should always be flexible to change stuff like that. That's well, here's we- the thing. I am a virtue ethicist. And when I, we were talking about Paul, you said Paul was laid back. I think it's because Paul was teaching virtue ethics. You I know what that is? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I would say yeah. The, yeah. So like what he's sort of doing is he's saying like, stop worrying about rigorous laws you necessarily have to follow. Not all, you, you say, you know, all is lawful, but not all is helpful. You should be focusing on how to build a virtuous character. And sure, maybe eating meat that was sacrificed to Zeus is not going to affect that. But if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, then that's an issue you need to take account because it's about building this virtuous character. So it's very much this idea that Paul may be a little laid back because he's not so rigorous on laws. But I would say he is quite rigorous when it comes to doctrines. Sure. and I, but, but that's the thing about Paul that I think what made him so successful is he was able to he was able to understand the diversity of the Greek world. And that's what made uh, Paul was genius in that sense. And so I, I I would say, I don't know, like what my, my guess what I'm saying is what happened to that flexibility, you know? Well, I don't, I think there's, I, I've argued that Christians should be more fl- flexible when it comes to ethics, but not in doctrines. So like I did vid- uh, TikTok videos where I said, it's okay for Christians to swear uh, because that's not affecting a virtuous character. Uh, I mean, like if I said, oh, shit, I stubbed my toe. That's not a sin. But it would be a sin if I said, hey, Neil, you're a moron. Uh, That's more of a sin than saying, oh, shit, I stubbed my toe. And so we need to be, we need to think about what we're doing. What is helpful? Let's not make these rigorous laws that make no sense. And so I'm all for that in terms of ethics. Uh, Because if you follow the virtue ethics teachings that I think Paul and Jesus laid down, you're going to have some flexibility in these types of things. Like I'd argue that in John, I believe it's seven, Jesus lies. He lies to his brothers who see and they say, are you going to the feast? He goes, no, I'm not. Then we see him going to the feast. Well, in the ancient world, lying was not necessarily evil if you were doing it to protect someone. The same mentality behind the idea that you have Jews hiding in your basement and the Nazis come and knock you on your door, you're going to lie. <laughs> That's the virtuous thing to do in that case. So the same kind of idea there. So, yeah, I'm all for it when it comes to ethics. But I would say doctrines is where Christians draw the line. Yeah, no, that that to me was one of the, that's one of the things that even right now I would agree that Christianity did well compared to other uh, faiths or religions. It was this, it was a very situational, like, okay, we have all these laws for Sabbath. Okay. We should maybe follow them for the most part, but there might be a situation where some, <laughs> you might have to do something once in a while and it's okay. And like the uh, Yom Kippur war. The, yeah. Yeah. And the, the idea of, the idea of being circumcised in the heart, I like that that idea. It's like, okay, what 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 are you what are you trying to do? What do you really mean? What's in your heart? What how are you as a person rather than what mm-hmm. you did that one day on Saturday at four o'clock? You you, you understand what I'm getting at? That to yeah. me was is one of the strengths of Christianity, where I think those that type of mentality is very useful. The Stoics pretty much apply that attitude as well. Oh yeah, and I absolutely agree. Uh, that, that that is one of the strengths of virtue ethics, uh, that flexibility right. that we right. need. Um, that's one of the reasons I am a virtue ethicist. Uh, so, 
And when it comes to the aspects of the uh, more Gnostic side of Christianity that encourages more inquisitiveness, one of the things that I didn't really understand that much when I was looking at uh, just like the lives of uh, the medieval Christian peasants is that the Mass was in Latin. They didn't really understand what was going on from what I'm able to, uh, to get. So you're living a life where you are pretty innocent when it comes to the knowledge of a lot of these things just being told whatever it is that you're told in church is that enough to make a person good or i think this is something closer to judaism where there is this idea that god would value the person who would understand what it means to do evil what evil is so that they do not do that as opposed to somebody like a sheep you know with the bishop being their shepherd or whatever you know just being in the field and not having any contact with the wolves and not even knowing that the wolves exist like that mm. i would say would be my biggest concern when it comes to keeping people in that kind of state of ignorance as far as whether those people can even be said to be good because if they were given the opportunity if they were tested if they were all of a sudden given some, you know, some ability to do evil, like, how do you know they wouldn't? Would they even understand what they were doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree with you. Uh, there was, I, there was a disconnect in the Middle Ages, uh, and Robert Woodbury talks about this in some in papers that uh, when Protestant groups came along, they started trying to educate people more and to teach them Christianity, help them read the Bible. Like you had the the pilgrims at Plymouth not only uh, translate the Bible in Algonquian, they had to invent an alphabet in Algonquian to translate the Bible. Uh, and what happened was, is that was actually a good thing because Catholics started to compete with them. They started to go, okay, well, we want to compete with Protestants. We're going to start printing material and educating more. And then you had this, so people like- Free market, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you had this um, kind of like this kind of competition among brothers in, in Christ about how we want to make sure people get educated. And the competition actually led to more education. So, you know, it's, it's like people get, up, get upset at the Protestant Reformation. I think it was necessary in some extent because it sort of awoke the church to sort of compete with the Protestants. And that was a good thing in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, as far as that goes, I mean, that's another thing that I would say. If we if there wasn't a lot of all these government decrees early, like not I should say early on, but fourth century, um, yeah. you might not have this this powerful church at all. You might have different institutions in different areas, one of them in Macedonia, one of them in uh, um, Gaul, another one over here. And they might have like their own different systems going on, sort of like how it is now, but it would have happened faster than it did. Don't you? I mean, I'm just throwing something out there. What do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, we have to remember, though, that the, 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 the power of the church in the Middle Ages is far overblown. Tim O'Neill talks about this, like how like there was one pope, I think it was Innocent II, may have been in the Middle Ages. He was going to be a really radical pope. He was going to lay down laws and he declared, if you want to be a Christian, you need to attend mass at least once a year. <laughs> like very, very strict guy. I mean, the, the power of the church is like, has been what? What do you say? The power of the church that, you know, is sort of portrayed in Hollywood or some movies is really overblown. They didn't have this exorbitant amount of power they wish they would have had. Uh, I mass, mean, mass once a year. That's what you said. That was the requirement for the yeah. people. That's what I was. Oh, that's what he said. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very not very strict, and you know a lot of a lot of the times, especially in the early days when there was the Holy Roman Empire, still and you know right. in present day Germany, 
the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor were at war a lot of times, oh, yeah. and they oh, were yeah. constantly excommunicating each other. Yeah. So the idea of the Pope had this overwhelming power and authority to do what he wanted. I mean, and the then you Pope have you also have the Greek, you also have the Patriarch in Greece too, <laughs> doing yeah. his own thing. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that, especially with the schism. I could, yeah, I see that. Yeah, I mean, so the idea that they had this overwhelming power they could use to enforce it, we don't really start seeing that come about until we get the Inquisition. And there was debate about what causes that. And again, the power of that is overblown. Uh, in a lot of ways, the Inquisition was more lenient than even some of the more secular governments at the time in terms of what they did. Um, like the whole persecution of Galileo is taken way out of context and overblown. Um, it, it's There's a whole mm. saga there. But uh, digging into that a little bit deeper, though, if we're not talking about the power of the Holy See, if we're talking about the local villages with their priests, how much power did those villages uh, or did those priests in the villages have over the people within their uh, congregation? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I, it would probably have varied. Uh, we uh, there was the Gregor the Gregorian reforms, I believe it is, that really started to solidify more centralization power. Um, I believe about a thousand years ago. And that's when priests were declared they could no longer marry. Uh, so prior to that, priests could marry and they had wives. And then they said, nope, no more of this. And more power was being centralized in the Roman church at that point and less in more of like the local priest and his power. So we do see more of like a, again, Tom Holland talks about this in his book, Dominion, goes through the history of that and uh, how they started. That's when they started cramping down on more of like heretical movements in ways that mm. probably was not right. Well, I guess the other reason why I bring it up, I mean, it's not, uh, it's become kind of a cliche today for people who are not fans of the Catholic Church to talk about, you know, like the molesting priests and all that stuff. I just wonder when it comes to individuals being in the position of power within their local community, how much of that stuff, obviously that's not the kind of stuff that gets recorded down, how much mm -hmm. of that stuff would have went on because that local church did command respect. But then again, what you said about the one year, uh, one time per year thing makes me think that how often did people go to church? Like maybe it wasn't really that important or was it for like well, the average that thing? That was the thing to do. They didn't have mood theaters. You went, you were, <laughs> I mean, that that's, that's why I'm bringing, this is a big, this is a big thing of my, why I get, why I want to bring all this top, all these topics up because this is like, this was the thing the central part of life it's like what we think of now in film and art and music which is all like how it's what builds your character what builds who you are as a person personality well that was what religion was you know and i think that more freedom for that religion is is i mean healthy i guess you know but isn't that like watching a movie uh, like a foreign film without subtitles if they're all speaking in latin Right, that's a good point, and that's that, that's that's another thing. People uh, in in the Protestant movements were, you know, were kind of going. It was one of the many things they were sort of like fighting against. But if you go back before even that, I was talking to um, Andrew. Oh, wait, real quick, real quick. Yes. I misspoke. The Pope that made that one mass a year thing was Innocent the Third, not Innocent the Second. So my mistake. Mm. Sure, that's not a big deal. Um, Innocent the Second was the one who went to the. He's the one who was for the Crusades, right? Yeah, I think so. But anyways, maybe. Oh, yeah, I think I'll he looked it up. Yeah, that's a pretty good name, by the way. That kind of absolves you. You know, you're innocent. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, what I was saying was, I was talking to Andrew. Is it Andrew Henry? Doctor Andrew Henry from Religion for Breakfast. I think that's his name. Hmm. I wish I hope I got it right. But yeah. I was talking to him about this because his main area of expertise, where he wrote his PhD dissertation on, was early Christian uh, artifacts 
amulets, stuff like that. And early on, like fourth, fifth century, a lot of these Christians would they would go to worship mass on Saturday or Sunday, and then on Monday they would go to their local grotto, their local grove where they had the Odin sanctuary. They were doing both at the same time, mm -hmm. and it was very common at the time. Oh yeah, it was. Um... I mean, as Christianity spread out, uh, it was interpreted still by some in typical pagan fashions. Well, this is just another god for us to worship kind of thing. Sure. And you see, like, you know, stories of, like, St. Bonifath or St. Martin clamping down on that and saying, nope, they that's not pissed. how we do this. Yeah, they were pissed. Yeah. But, I mean, these were the guys that were studying the scriptures far more in depth than, like, the, you know, the average guy on the street kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. The average people just wanted – the average people are doing this because this is what gives them fulfillment in their lives. Like, like, like I was saying before, they don't have, they can't watch a, a Steven Spielberg movie. They can't go to the bowling alley. They're, this is what they do. Like, this is what, you know, they read philosophy or read ancient, uh, you know, Homer or something. That's their entertainment. And a lot, and, and a part of that was reading scripture and worshiping gods. It's just part of the, part of the world at the time. Um, oh, what was I going to say? I forgot what I was going to say. I can't well, while you're trying to remember that, I also want to let everybody know, don't forget to smash that subscribe button, smash the like button, and also click the bell, which is very important, extremely important for the algorithm. Share this to as many people as you know. Break the Rules brings everybody together. And with your help, uh, we are going to uh, get Michael to feel a lot better, because I know that right <laughs> now you're in this uh, state right now. So even though I'm not Christian, I'm still you know, going to pray to the, uh, you know, just that you feel better because you're <laughs> a good you. guy and you know, I don't want you to feel bad anyway. I remember um, what I was going to say now. Nice. Nice. So you have, you had this lineage, I guess it comes out of Orphism. A lot of scholars say it comes out of Orphism where you have Pythagoreanism, Neoplatonism, Middle Platonism, Neoplatonism, and this sort of line of philosophy that sort of coincides. And I think influences in a lot of ways, Christian theology. And they sort of go, they sort of like are, aligning throughout the throughout the centuries and so early on i think is like like you get these sibylline oracles for example and if you read the sibylline oracles in the pseudopigrapha you'll see what is this pagan is this jewish christian you don't know what it is there's a mix and there's this idea of people who are just god fears in general they're not really like they're not dogmatic in one in any direction and i i don't see what the problem with that would be i feel like that that is a better approach to religion than saying this has to be done this way. If I, I, don't know, I hope I'm not repeating myself, but I was just trying to give a better example of like where these ideas come from. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what we mean. Like this has to be done this way kind of thing. Um, again, again, I, I don't think Christians like myself are willing to compromise on doctrines uh, when it comes to what the Orthodox beliefs is and what the, it means to follow Christ. Uh, we're pretty clear that, you know, when it comes to ethics, of course, there's going to be flexibility and depending on the various circumstances you're going into. But, uh, but I mean, when it comes to doctrines, wouldn't, in, wouldn't it be all right for you to say, this is my doctrine. I belong to this church and this is our doctrine. You over there, you're, you claim to be a Christian too. Well, I don't agree with your doctrine, but okay, fine. Don't, well, it depends oh. on what that doctrine is. I mean, if we're talking about how to baptize, sure. Talking about the nature of Jesus. Now we're getting something that's a little they, more essential. What if they say we'll leave you alone? You do your thing at your church. We're going to do our thing at our church. This is what we believe. We we got it I'm, from the scripture, and this is from Acts 
five two, and then and like they show where they got it from, and they really believe that this is the case. Then what? Do I you mean, see? that's freedom of religion. They they can believe what they want, but I mean, I don't I don't also have to believe that they are part of the body of Christ. Is, is sure, I would say it. I think that'd be a good. Uh, I think that would be a healthy. Like we kind of have that now, but yeah. I guess I guess when I'm just I'm talking historically, I guess it's all like oh it could have been should have been. I'm saying like yeah that, I, I, that's my whole thing you know. Mm. I mean I think that's the way a lot of the early church worked. I mean when Valentinius became a heretic because you know he they passed over him for the bishop role, he went out on his own and started his own you know own belief system. And they were like you know we don't agree with you. We think you're a heretic, but you know they didn't go out and try to kill him or anything. I mean right right yeah. And I, I think that was a good time. And that's another thing. You see this in Judaism, in the, in the Talmud, this idea of and, – and Plato, Plato and Socrates were huge on this. The idea of debates, the idea of two people who disagree on something, duking it out point by point, and then writing it down, and then letting people read it and decide for themselves who's, who's right here. The Platonic dialogue. I think you see that in the New Testament where you see in the Book of Romans – Paul talking about it's all about faith and not works. Then you flip over to James. James says it's not just about faith. You got to do good works, idiot. Like, come on, man, do works. So that I like. And people say, oh, the Christianity is uh, contradicting itself. I mean, it points to that. No, no, I think that should be the way. That's normal, healthy human interaction. I mean, I would disagree on the James and Paul contradict, but I mean, I get where you're coming from. Right. Yeah. I guess when, when the state starts to come into the picture, that's when uh, the time for debates is officially over, and uh, <laughs> a particular kind of way of doing things is uh, enacted. And I think we can all agree here that's, what's, uh, that's the fly in the ointment here. But uh, as far as what we do now, we do have a lot of uh, freedom of religion, you could say. We have a lot of choices. We have the internet. People can research and start uh, start to come to their own conclusions. The only downside there, I think it goes back to an older video of yours, Michael, that I told you uh, before I really enjoyed about the question of freedom, where there's positive freedom and negative freedom. And mm -hmm. when it comes to people who may not be so philosophically inclined, if they were to, let's say, like uh, Neil was saying, just decide to do their own thing or go to this particular place that they tend to resonate with the most, is there a concern that there will be some kind of a lowest common denominator effect where people are going to go to something that's just going to be like in Pinocchio, you know, going into that pleasure island, just having a lot of fun and not really doing anything to better oneself, but because it's the lowest common denominator, more people are going to want to do that, you know, when they're enticed to, as opposed to something a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, a, a little bit more stoic, a little bit more uh, quieter, and uh, self-contemplative and something that encourages inner growth. So if I can, if I understand you correctly, it's this comparison between more of like the lenient type thing about the pleasure Island, what you were using. Yeah. More people doing what they want versus more like a more strict sense. I'm kind of confused on what you're, what you're trying to ask me in that though. What I'm trying to ask you is whether the pluralism of religions that we have today, which on one hand I could see as being a good thing, if I were to go against my own uh, thoughts on that, I would bring something up of uh, this nature of when there is too much choice that people have, 
when there isn't some kind of a hierarchical system that they consider to be the correct one because it was passed down to them from their ancestors, would it be a lot easier to fall down spiritually and socially and just just become a human wreck because you just end up doing whatever it is that gives you the most pleasure, that's where you end up putting in the most time, even in terms of the kind of organization that you end up joining. That would be kind of like me fighting against myself when it comes well, to that belief can, in pluralism. We can point to the Greeks and the Romans that were already had a world that way, and never, and there wasn't a problem. It's not, there, you still have pious people, you still have, you know, it, it's not like they were running around just like having orgies every day. There, there was Not every day. There was good. There was good philosophy. There was good story. <laughs> Christianity came out of that world. You know what I mean? I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Christianity tra- clamped down on a lot of that, especially the brothels and the uh, uh, the um, infanticide happening there, as well as as well um, that you know, mm-hmm. Holland talks about. Um, those ideas aren't just central to paganism as like a religion. Those are like no. s- like s- that's human nature. Yeah, it's very specific. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's human nature, but Christianity at the same time, as you say, Michael, it was able to clamp down on that part of human nature that paganism had a harder time clamping down on. Would that be a fair assessment or no? Well, yeah. Well, if you go back to the pagan cultures, I mean, there was a lot of things they sort of took for granted that we would deem evil, like slavery. You know, in the Roman world, slavery was like just the status quo. You don't question it. And then Gregory of Nyssa comes along and says, no, the Bible says slavery is wrong. It should be abolished. This is what Christ would want. And of course, you know, that was a radical but then idea. Why not, but then why not just have it in the Bible? Why not just have slavery? Why not have, like Jesus never mm-hmm. says that. Paul, there's laws for slaves and tell your, tell your slaves, be good to your masters. Why not just say it outright? I mean, I get, I, I'm, I agree with you. There are Christians in our, throughout history who didn't want slavery. Okay, of course. But I think it's like, that's not a Christian idea. That's a human idea. It doesn't come mm-hmm. from the Bible is what I'm saying. Well, I mean, as, as you know, I mean, as Tom Holland, Tim O'Neill would argue, I mean, the, the anti-slavery movements throughout the past 2000 years were very Christian. Uh, you know, Steven Pinker tried to argue that a lot of it came out of like enlightenment ideas. But I mean, the the abolitionist movements, especially of the past couple hundred years, were basically run by people like Quakers and Anglicans why? arguing that the, this is what the Bible taught. Right. But then why would it why would it have to happen? Two thousand. Like, OK, let's be let's be let's be more exact. Fifteen hundred years. What, what, what's the why we have to wait 1500 years for these things to happen? I would argue uh, in line with Tom Holland's book, it took a while for things to change, for it to actually start affecting people the way it did. Like, take, for example, the idea of patriarchy. Uh, Tom Holland tells, talks a lot in his book about patriarchy yeah, in the it, world and how as strong it was and how much control it had over women. And the church started introducing ideas like, hey, marriage should be based on romance. Uh, marriage should be between a union between one man and one woman and fathers should not get to, you know, use their daughters to make alliances, to sort of arrange things, use them in that kind of sense. So the church started authorizing marriages without their, their parents consent that these people could just get married because, and Holland says this started to encourage more individuality. It started to break down ancient patriarchal structures that took time because that sort of, that sort of mentality has been so embedded in the the ancient mind for such a long time. It's going to take time for these ideas to filter in for people to start to understand what these ideas are, where they're coming from, and how they're they're to change things. They're not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time for it to filter in through the culture. But you still have to, I mean, you still have a, at least a thousand year period where (laughs) church has the, the, the church has the power to make changes happen immediately. And then 
when a when when slit when a abolition actually does come, it's after a time where there's a constitution set in place that is, I mean, it's so that we have the three fifths compromise thing, right? Before, but like these ideas are coming after there's already a whole world set in place with a, with a system that's based on constitutional republics and democracy. You know, I, mean, I think we're I think we're overestimating the power the church would have had throughout these ages. Like, for example, the early Frankish, you know, kings early on were not they tolerated a lot of the, the monast monast monasteries at the time, but they really were not they were really not having power. Uh, early, you know, kings on the Isle of Britain had slaves at them, though. I mean, I can some of them did, yeah, some of them did. Right. I mean, I'm not going to deny that. Yeah, but I mean, but still, if they have slaves themselves, we can't but say. But you that. also have to remember that at some point, a lot of these monasteries were sort of hijacked by the states, and they started putting their own, you know, political allies in charge of them, bringing them in. They started to get used by the state because they realized they had some sort of control over the people. So, right. that, a lot of that, these were used by the state. That, and that's part of my whole point in this whole discussion is when the state has the power to dictate what the religious decrees are, what these decrees are then the uh, these good ideas of christianity like what jesus would have done sort of gets you know stomped on the bottom and exactly we get 1500 years of nothing really like g like that's, that's exactly it's like what do you but think that, that's say if he's if you if, like, let's say we're in the year 1500 uh who's the pope uh pope borgia alexander uh <laughs> what would he say if he came to the world and saw what was going on during that time period he probably wouldn't be too happy about his church, right? I mean, I just, I'm just saying. Well, I mean, yeah. Uh, but I mean, you also, as I was saying, you know, you, you just, you, as you were mentioning, I completely agree with you that a lot of the times the state did sort of hijack these types of things. Like you had the whole uh, time period of like, um, uh, who were those popes like the, the, that were sort of like in charge of things that were not the Machiavellis, but the, 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 the Medici. Yeah. Medici popes. Same, yeah. same time period. Same time period. Yeah. 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 So you, Guy looked you know. like Tony Soprano, by the way. Look at a Pope Leo <laughs> X. Exact replica of Tony Soprano. But anyway. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, actually. Yeah, you, you totally had this idea where the, the state was sort of using the church. They're putting their buddies in charge of like this bishop appointment or this pope is being, you know, is sort of the hand of this Frankish government or this Italian government, this kind of thing. And so that's not coming directly from Christianity though. That's the state using their power systems in play to sort of push their own power. And the actual teachings of Christianity, as you said, are being pushed out to the side. So of course we wouldn't expect the ideas that we would see these anti-slavery, these freedom ideas coming out of that sort of period when there's, there's no breathing room for Christianity. It's all being used for state power. Right, and that, but that, I mean, that bring it brings us back to the idea of having a, a centralized decree system of how Christianity should be run, which requires, if that's the case, now you require a strong centralized power. You mean? I don't think so. I don't so, think you need a strong centralized power to have essential Christian doctrines. I think you need texts. That's why we have the New Testament that sort of define this idea. I think you need a church that sort of like. Uh, works to sort of set parameters for what Christianity is. Uh, but I don't think you need a strong central power for sure. Uh, I think that would actually be more of a problem. I'm all against that kind of idea, especially if right, but I don't want a strong central power. And then how, then how do you, how do you stop someone who comes along and says, I don't like this decree. I think this is what, I don't think there's a Trinity. I think that Jesus was a prophet. Like, how do you stop those things? Then you kind of need to have a strong centralized, you need to have church and state together to fix those things. 
I guess I, I think that's where the problem starts. I think I would go refer back to the teachings of Jesus where he said, let them go. They are blind leading the blind. If you go or in Matthew 10, if you go to a city and they reject your message, just dust the sandals off your feet and move on. It's not this idea we need to control that or fix that. That's just you've presented the gospel. They reject it. Oh, well. Right. No, I agree with that. And that's I think that should have been that should always be the mentality for any religious person. I believe this. I Amen. think I think this is what's going to happen to you when you die. I think this is what's going to happen when I die. You have every right to believe that. And it's but it's like at the same time, leave that person alone. Let them mm-hmm. let them live their, you know. But then comes the element that I mentioned earlier of proselytization, where if not for that element, I'm not sure there would have been this embrace of Christianity by a centralized government. Because without that element, if it's just kind of like a pick whatever you want type of deal, like with paganism, but yeah, you're going to have to like maybe like give a penny to the emperor or whatever. It's like ah, no big deal. It does not strike me the same as a religion who, for, for which it's extremely important to spread it out to as many people as possible. Because that's not really, from what I understand, what was going on with the pagan religions, right? Well, yeah, they were not proselytizing. But I mean, again, the religion in the ancient world is a little bit different of a concept than what we think of. Uh, I mean, you know, the pagans didn't say like they were a pagan. Like, that's their religion. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was more interwoven with just the whole entire worldview and just their culture. I mean, everyone just sacrificed to Zeus. That's what the culture was. It, we, we today in the modern world separate religions out as something separate. And to them, that wasn't a thing. Uh, Christianity comes on the scene and it, it's an exclusivity thing that they are struggle with that you know the outside world struggles with like why can't you sacrifice to the emperor and worship your god like what's the big problem here and christianity was advocating the idea that we're actually jesus is king not caesar which was a problem for the romans they didn't like that idea uh and you know preaching this exclusivity idea this idea that you can only worship jesus uh, who is yahweh and no one else and if you do that that's wrong and it just was like a totally different thing to them uh, and that was, I think, the main issue for them. Well, earlier, Neil was talking about Christianity being compared to SJWs, and it reminded me of a very interesting article that I read in the Substack. I wish I could remember who wrote it, but they were talking about how the elites of that uh, time when Christianity was starting to become a little bit more accepted in the way they saw the writing on the wall, and they knew that they had to convert to Christianity now in order to fit in in a way kind of like the banks today and various uh, big corporations are conver- converting to wokeness. So <laughs> I don't, I don't know if like that's a, pr- uh, if that's a fair comparison or not. No, to I make. think that is a fair comparison. I mean, you do only see this as Christians started growing. People just started converting because it was the cultural thing. And that's always a problem that that's not real Christianity. That's cultural Christianity. Yeah. You also have, the idea like acts two, i'm looking at acts two right now and it says like all those who had believed were together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all that any might have need i mean these are ideas that are like that are kind of polar opposite of what you would see in some like i don't know like baptist church in south carolina where Everybody's like, well, we have to have Trump win because we have to have a great economy. And they're worried about how the economy is and how good America is going to do. Whereas these Christians in these texts are worried about feeding the poor and they don't care about like you. And I'm agreeing with you. They don't care about Caesar or who's going to be the next Caesar or Mm -hmm. what Caesar's successor is. They don't care about none of that. They're caring Mm -hmm. about 
their church and their sort of lifestyle and how they're going to be good Christians. Right. 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 And anytime it, you start to, to make Christianity political, you're going to come into problems. It was never meant to be that. Thank you. At least we agree on that. That's, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. we agree on a lot of things. I yeah. No, I, somebody in the uh, chat here said, like, this is like one of the least uh, uh, mean spirited uh, debates of all time. So, really uh, we're just no, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess conversations kind of merge into debates and vice versa. Sure. Like, it's never, it's never like a one zero type of deal, uh, at least not on Break the Rules, that is. But uh, another very interesting uh, thing for me to think about regarding this uh, question of Christianity in today's world is going back to the idea of education and the knowledge of good and evil. Where do you think a lot of everyday people are at as far as today i'm not talking about the middle ages but today their understanding being bombarded with a lot of different information their understanding of what it means to actually be a good person as opposed to pretending to be a good person kind of like we're talking about wokeness before where people try to perform as if they are a good person without necessarily understanding what it actually means to be good like do you think it's the same that it was back in the day is it less so is it more so is there any way for us to even know that like the general the general uh feeling of a lot of people who happen to consider themselves to be christians at least on paper about what if they think they're being good or not? Yes, about whether they're um, about whether they actually go through the steps to understand that, as opposed to just looking like they're good, looking like they're a good Christian. You know, just going yeah. to church, just saying the right things. Like, how much is it actually happening within, as opposed to without? Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean, we can't know unless we talk to each person, of course, I and mean, we can never really truly truly know. Um, I do think uh, it seems as though uh, there is a, a lot of times Christians can fall into the idea that it's more about public appearance. Churches become more of country clubs uh, where everyone has to appear good and fit in. And if you don't, then you're sort of kicked out or you're sort of shunned, which is a problem. Uh, and I think that is definitely a problem in the modern churches where Christians are more focused on their appearance and how they look to the outside world versus actually trying to fix themselves with from within and accept they're a sinner and accept they're not perfect. It becomes more of a pride issue. I have to look good to the outside world versus actually be good. And then there's the other side of the coin when it comes to pagan faiths, where they participated in things like Saturnalia. From what I understand, Gnostic, you can talk a little bit more about this than me. It was pretty egalitarian in that whether or not you were a master or a slave, you got to participate in this festival. And yeah. from what I'm understanding, the entire point of a lot of these mystery cult initiation ceremonies is for you to gain a certain amount of gnosis, if you will, than you otherwise wouldn't. And it seems today there isn't really, I mean, again, we have Christianity, Islam, those are like the uh, two big ones. We have esoteric Islam, which some people like Jason Giorgiani say that it's not really Islam, like they're pretending to be Muslim. Meanwhile, they're actually Mithraic uh, cults. But as far as Christianity goes, there may be some like esoteric, you know, like the Rosicrucians and whatever, the Freemasons. But generally speaking, most people don't engage in that kind of mystery school initiation 
do you think that that is something to be regretful about? That something like that that may have also taken place within certain early Christian sects is not really something that people embrace and instead, we have this, you know, looking like I'm being good without necessarily going through those motions. Uh, well, the Saturnalia thing is just like a traditional, you know, holiday spirit, basically, which a lot of those, a lot of that, a lot of those themes we still have today during the holidays, like putting up reefs on the wall and yeah. giving presents away. Mm. And this is all things that would be going on during Saturnalia festivals. There were no reefs. There, like, oh, there Saturnalia, no, like... Saturnalia. The reefs come from Saturnalia. I can show you that. Uh, I could actually Mary Beard, Mary Beard's religions are Rome. I could show you the right, right where they have these ideas from. The idea you're, of, you're saying Christmas reefs came from Saturnalia. Yes, they're not called. They weren't called Christmas reefs though. They were just reefs. You hang up reefs on your wall of your house during Saturnalia. That's a fact. Yeah, I would. I've done that's a lot of in the history of protect- Christmas. There's no evidence anything comes from Saturnalia. That's like one of the big things I've done. You're talking about reefs. You just, you, you, okay, I, I don't know how we can settle that, but uh, <laughs> uh, there's definitely that's definitely part of my understanding. Well, Neil, what are your sources what, for the reefs? Uh, okay, I just said Mary Beard has done a lot of work on religions of Rome. Saturnalia, though, the idea of Saturnalia, it was like um, there was even a they called it the King of Saturnalia, where they would take a common person and then put him in charge of like having power like the Caesar would. And they would like reverse. They tried to reverse the roles of, of society where everybody was equal just for this little time period. There was no status of plebeians and and uh, patricians. But yeah, everybody just sort of was like having, a, you know, just stop working and just enjoy yourself for this period of time up until December 23rd was when it stopped. Um where was I going with this? Yeah, this is like, and, and th- something like this is just traditional, you know, festivals. These ideas, th- this, the, the Christmas festival, you have this celebration. Um, Sol Invictus had their celebration around Christmas time. And then during the s- spring equinox, you have with Addis, you have the Holy Week of Addis from December or from March 24th was the Day of Blood. Day of Blood followed by another three days with a Day of Washing on December twenty seventh or on March twenty seventh. These idea, these uh, festivals during during uh, the equinoxes were common throughout all these different religions. Now, does that mean that Christianity stole that from them? No, not at all. And I can I can actually explain how this would happen. Jesus goes down for Passover during one of these festivals, gets killed during that weekend, and that turns out to be the weekend. It just happened that way. They didn't say, "Oh, we got to copy Addis." There, there literally is a coincidence here. I agree with that, but I'm just what I'm pointing out is the I, these these festivals are so central to these um, societies and, and, and Roman civilization that they sort of how Christianity sort of um, sort of adapts to it. It seems like. Yeah, the only thing I would push back is, is the whole Saturnalia thing on uh, the whole Sol Invictus thing. I don't think Christmas traditions really go back to any of those uh like for example christmas trees don't show up until alsace france in the 1500s in the germanic region uh i don't know about that because you have you have the idea of 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 cutting up this happens in egypt this happens in phoenicia you have the i'm not i'm not talking about uh for for christmas i'm talking about for for osiris there was pine trees and for addis there was pine trees too and then those are for for the holy week of osiris once a year 
you would cut up a pine tree and you would uh i forgot what they did with it but i know for the for the case of addis they had this idea of placing a pine tree in a location and having like having it decorated with stuff yeah but i mean it's not a christian thing that there's nowhere in the bible where it says do that i mean this this is these are these come from the pagan world so you know, scholars like Tanya Gulovich will note that uh, the Christmas tree most likely comes from paradise trees that were done in the Middle Ages. Uh, at December 24th was known as Adam and Eve's feast day, and they would typically celebrate it with a paradise tree decorated with apples. And of course, in Germany in the winter, the only trees available are going to be pine trees. So there's most likely more from that sort of custom, and that's why we don't see Christmas trees show up until the 1500s. It's not this idea it goes back to some sort of pagan thing they sort of like copied or borrowed or sort of took and repurposed. It probably just arose independently from European folk traditions. Right. I mean, the Addis thing wasn't on in December anyway. It was during the yeah. month of March. So I wasn't, I wasn't trying to say that the pine tree oh, okay. was for Christmas. But I will say, and I will stand by this, and I maybe we can try to get someone to fact check this. The, the idea of putting reefs up on the wall during Saturnalia was a thing. I will stand by that. Um, I'm pretty. I'll double check on that, but I'm pretty sure Christmas the Reese would not come from that because again, they don't really start showing up into the Middle Ages. Mm. All right, I'm gonna have to uh, take a look as well, and let's see if this works. By the way, you can. um, You can check out a video on my channel called Top Ten Christmas Traditions and Their Origins, and I go through Krampus, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, the date of Christmas. Yule logs, I show none of these. Or mistletoe, none of them go back to paganism. Oh, yeah, mistletoe. Mistletoe was something that you, yeah, I don't even know where that came from. I'm, that's something that's way different. Yeah, it started in like the the uh, English service class in about the 1700s. Yeah, because there's the, there's the myth of Balder where the mistletoe, for some reason, is the only thing that hurts him. That's how he gets killed. You know mm-hmm. that myth or not? Or it's in, yeah. It's in, uh, yeah, it's in Jackson Crawford's translations of the. Of the of the text. Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah, the uh, early poems, yeah. Right. Hmm. Interesting. So as far as uh, this conversation goes, I think we can start to uh, bring it to a close. Uh, and we're going to be doing Super Chats as well. So all the people out there, be sure to sneed those Super Chats for Santa here. And uh, before that, though, Neil, would there be any other points that you would want to bring up as far as the uh, various uh, Christian uh, sects go? Yeah, the last thing I want the last thing I would say to Christians in general is that Christianity could survive in the modern world and be a powerhouse. Not just survive, but be a powerhouse if it stuck to a political ideology that focused on bettering society and not trying to put uh, change not trying to um, dictate other people's lives. That's that's so. how I would almost agree. I would say that, yes, be apolitical. Uh, and I would say we don't ne- not to necessarily dictate other people's lives, but try to call people and say that this is the best way to live in the Christian ideal. But yeah, I don't, I don't think anything should be forced upon anyone. Sure. That sounds good to me as well. So here we go. This is a super chat time. And by the way, for all the people who are here who are also on Discord, Break the Rules does have a Discord server, and I would very much love for you guys to join us there. I'm going to be going to the uh, farm. In fact, tomorrow I may be going to a farm where they're going to be she- uh, shearing a sheep 
you know, taking the wool. And uh, I may be live streaming that on the Discord server if you guys want to check that out. So I just posted it in the chat right here. Be sure to join that. Once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. If you guys want some very beautiful rewards for becoming a patron, you are in luck because my father, he hand creates these very beautiful wooden magnets and these are going to be random designs for the $20 tier. For the $50 tier, if you are a fan of Styx Hexenhammer 666, you are going to get a beautiful Styx Dragon. And if you are not a fan or if you want a custom work, you can have a completely custom whatever design you want within the limits, of course, uh, uh, for you as a, a wooden magnet that my father is going to create. So that's up to you. And, of course, the uh, lower tier as well. We have the uh, $5 tier, and that is going to be for general love and support from the Break the Rules people to you, as well as MP3s of the episodes after they come out, as well as Patreon-only content, which is going to be coming very soon. And the more that you guys support the channel, the more you help BTR grow, the more of this content is going to be able to be produced. And as always, don't forget to click that bell. The bell is extremely important. And hit that like button and hit that subscribe button. Here are the super chats, everybody. Uh, okay, let's see here. Uh, Dems want to... I don't know if I should say this on YouTube, uh, but it has to do with like certain procedures that are going on right now with uh, children. Let's put it that way. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's very relevant in the news right now, but again, who knows how the YouTube algorithm treats this kind of stuff. Anyway, JDJW, who is, by the way, the current king of the Super Chat with a total of $40. You can see that in the ticker below over here. And if you want to usurp the rule of JDJW, you got to do more than 40 Anyway, JDJW for $10 says, I agree with damn near everything you guys are saying. I appreciate your knowledge and understanding. Tell me why old Greek literature describes wine red seas. No bullcrap didn't see blue answers. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, do you guys want to take a shot? <laughs> yeah, I think in Homer's epics, they talk about the the, uh, the sea is like as red as wine. Um, and I think depending on there, there's actually a phenomenon, not... there's actually a phenomenon in, in in Lebanon. It still happens this to this day, right around springtime when the rains start coming down. The the uh, built up. I forgot what kind of stone it is. It's like this red, oily stone, and it builds up during the winter time. And then when 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 the rains start falling, it washes it into the river. And they would call this. They named this river Adonis. It's now called the Abraham River. They changed it, but it was the River of Adonis. And they believe that this was the blood of Adonis washing out into the river. That was a uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I would I would say like when I've been on the ocean, you know, at least on the East Coast, it's sometimes in the evening or in the morning, the way the sun hits it does, the ocean can look kind of reddish, uh, like kind of like a darkish red kind of thing. So, I mean, you could describe the sea as that way. I don't see that as an issue. Interesting. So we have Jeanette McKinnon. Quick, I did find something on the Saturnalia thing. It's Ooh, from right. Britan Britannica. All right. Oh, no, not Britannica. They have, I have found <laughs> errors in Britannica over and over again. Well, I'll just read what it says. It says <laughs> Saturnalia celebrations had a direct impact on Christmas and New Year, celebrated the birth of the sun when houses decorated with greenery and lights and presents were given to children and the poor. 
So I have read Macrobius. I, I, I can book. find other scholars that have said the same thing too. I have read Macrobius's book on Saturnalia. He does not mention decorating with like greenery or pine or anything Actually, like that. Are you sure? Because I think Macrobius is one of the sources that says this. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I, I think he mentions them making certain types of wreaths, but not with pine. I didn't say pine. I didn't say that. Okay. Well, then, yeah. I mean, but I don't think Christmas wreaths came mm. from Saturnalia or any Christmas tradition came well, from Saturnalia. Well, out of curiosity, what is your take on the John Marco That's Allegro exactly. theories with, like, the sacred mushroom and the cross and all that? I mean, that's, oh, like, a whole on. other conversation, <laughs> but I wanted to throw that in there for all the Joe Rogan fans. Yeah, he makes his argument from like two things, like he, some frescoes from the Middle Ages, which are trees he thinks are mushrooms. And he tries to say that somehow Semitic languages are connected to Sumerian words through like Indo-European. It's a total hypothesis. There's not a lot of good evidence for it. But he tries to say that certain words, Semitic words are somehow related to Sumerian words. Again, no evidence for it, just a total hypothesis to conjecture. But that's his argument. Mm. And there's just there's no evidence to support what he's when he's making these connections. So, from what I understand, uh, the Semitic language comes from uh, originally the uh, f it's connected to the Phoenician language, which is connected to the Egyptian hieroglyphics. As far as the Sumerian language, how does that end up getting transferred if it does get it transferred into any other language over time? Do you know? Like, it, it may be out of your wheelhouse, but I was always kind of curious about that. Yeah, right. it's probably out of my wheelhouse there. Sorry. No, no problem at all. Later on, actually, Neil, I want to ask you the same question. So, um, just uh, just a slight interest of mine here. When uh, Michael was talking about how uh, John Marco Allegro attributed the uh, translation of the Sumerian words into Hebrew, and that justified his view of uh, you know this um, link between the psychedelics and uh, Christianity, uh, Michael disagrees with that. What do you know about the uh, connection with the uh, sum, uh, with the Sumerian language into any other language? Because, like I said, the uh, Hebrew language came from, if I'm not mistaken, well, from a well, Semitic, but uh, it, it came from the uh, alphabetization of the Egyptian hieroglyphics through the Phoenician language, right? Well, the, the alphabet of the Phoenicians yeah. is where the is the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But as far as the Sumerian language, did that one go through any similar kind of transformation over time? Or did it was it just like those strange-looking uh, lines? Yeah, yeah, cuneiform. Yeah, yeah cuneiform. And it never really turned into anything else, right? No, but the, the cuneiform, the people who use cuneiform ended up adopting the Phoenician script eventually. Mm, got That's where Aramaic from. Got it, got it. All right, here we go. Um, JDJW, $10. I love debates. You guys are awesome. But we only move forward if we acknowledge the past and accept future possibilities. Let's all just use this genius for the right now. Thank you so much, JDJW. And the last, the final super chat, unless there's going to be any other ones happening here, is from Jelly Drags, $9.99. What? Oh, I think I missed one here. I do not want to miss this one. It was about uh, the uh, Trump people here. Let me see if I could find it. Trump uh, people. Yeah, the Trump people. <laughs> Let me see where where it was. Oh, here we go. It was from Jeanette McKinson. Uh, what do you, what do you Christians? What do you think Christians would say about radical Trump Christians today? I mean, I'm all against this idea that you know Trump is a messiah and that Christian Christianity is like. The Christians should be like using Christianity to support that if you want to vote for it, keep it separate from Christianity. 
that needs to be important. I did a video on Christian nationalism with the help of a sociologist, Kenneth Vaughn, a few months ago. Uh, called, Does Christianity cause Christian nationalism? And we just, you know, talked about a lot of stuff in there uh, related to this. But no, I do not think that uh, that this idea should come out of Christianity. And there's some studies that show that it actually does not. Hmm. There we go. And I think the best example of why Christians today, why the Trump loving Christians today are completely, they, they should be called heretics. And just look at what Jesus says when he's handed the coin of Caesar. He says, what does he say? Mike, you, what, what does Jesus say when he's handed the coin of Caesar? He says, be sure to pay your taxes. Right, but he's, basically he's, render he's, to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render what to God what is God's. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 he 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 says things often throughout the text where it's these trivial matters of the world of the archons, the rulers of this world. Paul talks about this too. This is not the world that we're supposed to be concerned about. Christianity, you're supposed to carry your cross. If you like the first 300 years of Christianity, they lived under a world that they had the they didn't really didn't like reflect their worldview, basically. But that was part of being a Christian. You're supposed to you're supposed to endure that. Christians today complain about everything. Not you or I'm saying like the, the, I'm talking specifically about this Trump Christian not talking about I should have reworded that the the. Christian nationalists. Christian nationalists today complain about every little detail. That's not what. That's not the Christian way. That's why mm-hmm. they should be called heretics. And Christian nationalists, a lot of them also want the government to become a uh, theocratic one to enforce yeah. Christianity. Uh, yeah. So here we go. Just on the record, I uh, yeah, am yeah. incredibly opposed to Christian nationalism. Right, right. Incredibly opposed. Same, uh, same here, brother. So here we go. Uh, Jelly Drags, nine ninety nine. What is the overarching significance of clustering God with Jesus? If you extrapolate the same lessons from Jesus as a teacher who had glimmers of God's light shine through him, am I missing something? Yeah. So. Why do we say that Jesus has to be God seems to be the thing? Why not just a teacher at God's light shining through him? Well, for one, we we believe that this is what the New Testament teaches. I mean, we don't want to uh, say that, you know, not, not take Jesus at his word when he when we see this in the Gospels and in Paul's letters that he very much is Yahweh in the flesh. So that's important there. And I also think it's related to salvation, this idea that, you know, we need God who is going to be the true savior. Um, it's not this idea that a human can save us. It's much more... Uh, interest it's it's a much more deep and interesting connection with god when he though is the one who comes and saves us uh, himself i mean albert camus for example who was an atheist said christ the man god can no longer be entirely have evil entirely imputed to him because he comes and he suffers and dies for us he comes he puts himself on the cross he doesn't sit on his throne and expect a servant to do it for him he comes lives the life we should have lived dies the death we should have died and calls us to follow him to pick up our cross and follow after god who show who showed us how to do it properly so it's it's a much more profound message when it is god himself who comes and dies and not just he gets a human servant to do it for him now i am kind of curious whether uh camus was like full atheist or whether he just did not embrace the uh organized religion that he grew up with as far as i can tell he seemed to be an atheist uh but mm, you know, when you get to some of these philosophers, sometimes they sort of wrestle with different ideas, and you can. There's always ambiguity in there. Yeah, 
Well, anyway, I think uh, this is pretty much it. I mean, there was so much. Yes. Neil, if you ever want to do a conversation on Christmas origins, I'm all happy to. I've got videos on my channel called Christmas is not pagan. Easter is not pagan. Halloween is not pagan. St. Valentine's Day is not pagan. And I go into all the history of that. Ah, we got to have that discussion. I'm looking at Mary Beards right now, and it's matching with the, it's matching exactly what the Britannica thing said. What is her source? Uh, well, it's Mary Beard, man. She's the, she's the P, she's, like, she's the go to on this stuff, Roman religion. Yeah, but when you write something in the uh, book, she, don't well, you have she, like... has, she has images of, of these altars. Look at this. All Where's right. She... All right. Let's see. Hold on a second. I've just lost the page. I'm sorry. I'll get it right now. <laughs> Everybody, by the way, subscribe to Break the Rules while Neil is fiddling around with the pages. Oh, you know what it. you got to do. Subscribe to BTR right now. You know it. You love it. BTR is the future of bringing everybody together, people who otherwise would not have a chance to speak to each other. Not so much with Michael and Gnostic because I think that they are great people. They're already uh, together, linked up by the Holy Spirit, uh, which is uh, Derek. But uh, be that as it may... Uh, we are bringing Alexander Bard together with Daniele Bellelli, and that is happening a week from now, so look forward to that. And also this week, Catherine Brodsky and Josh Lakash are back. They have never been on the same stream together, but nevertheless, they are back, and that's going to be a very interesting stream. We may be talking about Kanye and uh, the current uh, uh, thing that's going on right now. And let's see... I, I don't know if I should announce this yet, if this is happening or not, because I did a uh, intro to a certain person here. I introed the idea to him of doing a, str- a debate about pit bulls, and he really? wrote LOL. I'm not sure <laughs> if uh, that uh, – uh, <laughs> does, that, does that mean yes? I'm not going to say who it is yet, but when you find out, you guys are going to be like, oh, my God. He's back, so I'm not going to say who it is yet if this does indeed happen. I'm going to will it to happen because that would be amazing if he comes back on for a debate about pit bulls, whether it is the dog or whether it is the owner. In fact, while Neil is fiddling around, Michael, what is your take on pit bulls? Is it the dog predisposition to being aggressive or is it the kind of owners that the pit bulls have that cause them to act in such a way towards the uh, those yummy uh, uh, infants that you know, they gobble up like candy. I think we can all agree the most dangerous dog is the Chihuahua. So let's just remember that. <laughs> uh, they're the most angry dog out there. Um, I think it's going to, it can probably be a combination of both. You can have dogs that are more prone to aggression. You can have humans more prone to making dogs aggressive. It's, I don't think, I don't think there's just one simple answer for all. Hmm. But it is weird though, how you have this one breed that's responsible for so much of the uh, attacks on people, pets, you know, especially like the infants, like that would say something about, I guess, I don't know, like it's rare. It's very weird. Like you have uh, the pit bulls and then right below you have the Rottweilers, but the Rottweilers, it's not as many bites as the uh, Pitbulls. Oh, and one final super chat from JDJW, $2. I'll come on and talk about anything. Well, I would love to have you, buddy. We should definitely do some kind of a uh, stream together there. So, yeah, I will see if he says yes or not, but otherwise, those two streams are down the line. And uh, w- once again, patreon.com slash break the rules. Become a patron today. You're going to get all this enjoyable stuff. Like, share, subscribe. Neil, how are you doing on that document? Well, well, let me tell you about the, what does this sound like to you? Okay. Festival involved private parties, standing over several days, exchange of gifts, uh, 
and customs became incorporated into Christian celebrations of New Year and Christmas. Uh, that's very so, I would say that, you know, books like this, for example, note the origin of Christmas gift giving goes back to the early 1800s. These sources are wrong then? I mean, I'm citing scholars. When they I'm say citing Mary Beard, Mary Beard, PhD. So Mary then my response to this always is, is where yeah. do we see Christians giving gifts on Christmas in like the 700s, you know, you know what I say? You know what I say about all this? Forget about the scholars. Let's go to the primary sources. If, you, okay. if I can find you primary sources from a writer in Latin or Greek from the first, second, third, first century BC, this is, it's, we're done. Like there's nothing you can, you can, well, here's cite, the thing. You can cite a Christian scholar all day. I could show you the primary source. Well, these are not Christian scholars. These are just scholars. Oh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying in general, I don't have, obviously I don't have them with me, but I, I doubt Mary Beers is making this up. That's what I'm saying. I'll find so what I would, I would say is a gift giving. We have to remember is something that happens in a lot of cultures on a lot of festivals. During, a lot of during the week of, during the same week as December 25th. Again, well, where, that's so specific. again, Christmas gift giving does not come about until within the past kind of hundred years. There's a huge hundreds of hundreds of years in between Saturnalia dying out and Christmas starting their own gift giving traditions. I'll have to, I'll have to check on that. I'm not gonna, I can't say you're wrong or right. Cause I don't know for sure, but I, I just have a hard time believing that it would die out. I think it might carry out. I think Christmas has always been a thing for a long time. I mean, it, it has been since Christians were celebrating, you know, the birth of Jesus, but I mean like, Certain Christmas traditions, like for example, decorating a pine tree, did not come out to the 1500s. Oh no, I, I was logs. The the pine tree thing, that's an Addis thing, and that's in that's in the springtime. That's something different. Yeah. I wasn't saying that. But, yeah, but I mean, like what certain I, my, Christmas traditions. My claim is decorating the house, decorating not just the house, but all of Rome with greenery and giving presents and stopping all work and just having a festival is an idea that predates Christianity. I'll stand by that. We can have well, a show. Okay. I think those ideas predate Christianity. My argument is that the Christmas traditions do not, they didn't like come from the pagans. These, for example, they know in this book that sometimes these customs sort of develop on their own in different cultures. So do you think Chris, Jesus was actually born on December 25th? No. Okay. So wouldn't that, wouldn't that, doesn't that defeat the purpose of even wanting to care about that? I'm just. No, the early Christians thought Jesus would die on the same day he was conceived. They thought he was conceived on March 25th. You just count forward nine months. That's why they picked December 25th. Oh, so he was actually, you think he actually was born, born on that day? No, early Christians thought that, but I'm not sure if he was. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I think it does say in the text that there's um, shepherds in the field, which would like give the give the idea that it's harvest time. So I've, I've mm. heard some scholars say that before. He probably that said that he think he might have been born around September, October. Yeah, but December of 25th wasn't picked because of any pagan holiday or anything like that. Mm, I think it was. I think that's what Constantine was trying to, he's trying to, he was trying to, uh, <laughs> Trying to, to fit to 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 be happy the Sol Invictus people who definitely revered this is a fact. I, I could no no it's not Sol Invictus. There's no sources that say Sol Invictus was on December 25th really? prior to 354 AD, which is in the Philokalian encounter. Prior to that, Aurelian worshipped the sun. Aurelian worshipped the sun every four years with chariot races in October. The Fasti inscriptions do not mention any festivals on December 25th. Pyam Nabars, PhD of Oxford University. 
Let's see what he has to say about this. Okay. Ronald Hutton, for example, also notes, we have no evidence of any sort of festivals from the Romans on December 25th. They debated about which day was the winter solstice, but even they did not treat it as a specific holiday. They just sort of treat it as a celestial event. But again, Christians picked it because of their own calculations. We have no evidence of any pagan holiday on December 25th prior to 354 AD in the Philo calendar. And but, I can cite people like uh, Roger Be Beckwith, or sorry, Beckworth, um, Ronald Hutton. Myth, according uh, to the Zoroastrian tradition, Mithra the Savior, born in 272 oh, BCE, no. born on the winter solstice. Nope. No evidence of that. Roger Beckworth is oh, soundly. There is not wait, any wait, 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 ancient wait, sources. Can, no. Let's, this is my thing. Whenever I get into these discussions with people, let's, because I got a, I got a, I got a scholar right here. You got a scholar too. Let's throw these out the window. Let's go to the sources. Okay. Let's see if I can find a pre-Christian source that talks. That says about, that talks I would. About, I will give you. I will donate I'll, twenty dollars. That it's not December twenty-fifth. I will say it's on the winter solstice. December twenty-fifth mm -hmm. might have just came. Something else must have happened with that. The Mithra what. was born on December twenty-fifth, or and on during, the, winter the winter solstice. That's a fact. It's, it's the inconquerable sun. The sun starts to rise. It's lose its lowest point in the sky. After December twenty third, that's not. I would be guess. very interested if you could find a source saying that because I, I have looked and I cannot find any dates for Mithra's birthday. I actually know of. I actually know of a Christian source. Clement of Alexandria says this. He Clement says that Mithra exhortation to the Greeks. No, he didn't say about Mithra. Uh, Clement of Alexandria says that the pagans revered the winter solstice because it's the day the sun rises up. He but that's not saying Mithra was born on that day. I don't know if he says Mithra in particular, but he's, he's acknowledging that these other religions of his time, which would be Sol Invictus, are, do, had this sort of thing. So I, Look, I, have Roger, to, I have to get the details on that. I don't have it in front of me. But I can I say, confidently say that he says something about he, – he acknowledges it. I'll just say Roger Beck says this in uh, Murbach's Mithra, his paper. He says, in truth, the only evidence for – for it is the celebration of the birthday Invictus on the date in the calendar of Philocalus. Invictus, of course, Sol Invictus, Aurelian sun god. It does not follow that a different earlier and unofficial sun god, Sol Invictus Mithras, was necessarily or even probably born on that day. So he says the only evidence of any sort of birthday of some sort of sun deity was, in, again, the Philocalian calendar, 354 AD. Prior to that, we don't have anything. But like I said, you just, you're just you referencing a scholar. I just reference a scholar. Which, who wins? We're, we're just at odds. We got to go to the sources, so we'll we fair can, enough. And, and I, I, I could be wrong. I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. If you're right, you're right. If I can't pull up a source, I'll just be yeah, you got that one. You know, <laughs> fair enough. I would love to see if you can find it though. Please send it to me immediately. I'd love to. Yeah, see no, it. that's I, I, I just have fun doing this kind of stuff. So that's not, you know. So a quick announcement, JDJW, uh, you can email me in the uh, contact info on Break the Rules, or you can make a Twitter account and just quickly message me at twitter.com slash lavpo. Speaking of which, all the people who are watching here, if you want to hear more quips and dad jokes from Lev here, uh, twitter.com slash levpo, L-E-V-P-O. Follow me on Twitter this instant. I'm also going to post art, animation, all that good stuff. J-D-J-W, please get in touch with me because I don't think the mystery guest is going to say yes. If he does say yes, that is going to be earth-shattering, but I'm not sure he will. So instead, I think the likeliest thing is that this week we are going to do a debate on pit bulls. 
and uh, JDJW is going to be on with Spinach Bra, who is very much against Pitbulls, and it's going to be a very fun experience, Patreon only, and if you become a patron, you are also going to get an opportunity to be in the debate itself as well, not just as the audience in the chat, but actually being able to participate and ask questions live and all that kind of stuff, so it should be a fun time for all. So yeah, you can also try the Discord server, and this is going to be another plug for the Discord server. Join Discord right now. I don't care how you get in touch with me, but please, JDJW, get in touch with me, all right? There's also an email, which is uh, my name, uh, levpoliakov at uh, gmail.com. That's another way that you can uh, get in touch with me. So you know my name, you know where it is. And lastly, but not leastly, plugs for you guys. So, Michael Jones, Inspiring Philosophy, is there anything that you would want to promote? And how do you, uh, uh, how do you think things are going to go in the next year for Inspiring Philosophy? What plans do you have? So, I'm going to finish up my series on the documentary hypothesis. I have a lot of videos I want to do on that. Uh, so, I'll probably do that for a while. But I'm also going to do a series on eschatology and if Jesus was a failed apocalyptic prophet do some more stuff on New Testament reliability. I'm going to make a case for post-millennialism, uh, view of eschatology. But next, this Friday on my channel, I'm doing something I don't normally do. I'm going to review the show Rings of Power on Amazon mm. because I'm an avid supporter of Tolkien's philosophy. Like I've read books called Tolkien's philosophy. Hell and yeah. they butchered his philosophy to the point where I'm just so angry oh, how they wow. ruined it. I didn't know so that. I'm going to go into Tolkien's philosophy. I'm going to show how the show gets it wrong, how they... Or inserting like ideas they get from George R. R. Martin's books into <laughs> Tolkien's world. It's horrible. It's heresy, man. It's heresy. It is. It's That's Tolkien the real heresy. heresy right there. Exactly. Oh man, I am looking forward to that. And where can people find you? I mean, your channel, obviously, but Yeah, you can find me on TikTok. Uh, I do a lot of comedy replies on there to people, like some crazy new agers sometimes. Uh do uh, of course you can find me on YouTube where I do a lot of videos as well as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Excellent. And uh, Gnostic Informant, Neil, what do you have cooking in your Gnostic kitchen? Um, YouTube.com slash Gnostic Informant. And let's see, I'm working on a video about the uh, Her Herodian dynasty. Um, I have a video about the Apocrypha, T Dr. Tony Burke, who has done so much work in Christian early Christian origins. He has two books already translating pocket protects that no one's even heard of. He's got a third one coming out next March. I had him on. I just I just did a pre-record with him. I'm editing that now. So we're going to talk about some of these Christian texts that most people never even heard of. And we're yeah, yeah that's stuff that's coming down the line. I also have a video with a scholar on a Native American religion, which is pretty fun. So some yeah, we got some videos coming out. Welcome to Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. And guys. Be sure to subscribe to everybody here and subscribe to Break the Rules. Uh, super chat, uh, super chat's already gone. Uh, like, uh, smash that subscribe button and smash the bell. The bell is extremely important. Thank you guys so much for watching. Till next time, be well. 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 Time.